You're listening to Episode 6 of the Secret Origins Podcast, featuring stories of the Golden Age Batman and Halo. The Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and this episode, I'll be joined by two special guests to help me cover Secret Origins number six. Starting with this issue, Secret Origins would tell multiple stories in each issue. Most of the time, the issues featured one hero from the Golden Age and one from the Silver, Bronze, or Modern eras. Secret Origins Issue 6 told stories about the Golden Age Batman, as well as Halo from Batman's team of Outsiders. Later in this episode, I'll be joined by Luke Giaconetti to cover the Halo origin. But first up is the Caped Crusader, the Dark Knight Detective, the one and only... Well, no, not the only. I guess technically that's the whole point of this story. Forget that part. It's the Batman, ladies and gentlemen. And making his triumphant return to the Secret Origins podcast is Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast. Welcome back, Chris. Oh, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me back, Ron. It's great to be here. Awesome to have you back. I, I love having you on the show. I love talking to you. So I was thrilled that you wanted to do this. So. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm all up for Batman, especially Batman as drawn by Marshall Rogers. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so... Chris, my, by now my listeners might have figured out that you got to co-host on the Superman and Batman issues. <laughs> so if anyone out there wants to accuse me of playing favorites with my guests, I really don't have much of a defense. <laughs> yes, I have the world's finest team down. I'm sorry. I've, <laughs> I actually <laughs> – I was talking to, to Kyle Benning. Uh, we had him on – Supermates, uh, and uh, I mentioned that that I had done the Superman episodes. He's like, "That was you." So, <laughs> so uh, it's like, "Yeah, that was me." I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you stepped in a pinch because Michael Bailey couldn't make it for that one. So, right, of course, Michael Bailey's the guy you, you, your go to Superman guy, of course. Yeah, but uh, you know, I'm, so the, the, the Earth Two Chris part, I guess, kind of, you know, Earth Two Superman, it worked out. But uh, yeah, I'm glad to be back for for Batman. If I had to, I hate to say this, but if I had to pick. Batman over Superman, Batman would have won out here because it's Batman and it's, again, Marshall Rogers. So, yeah, yeah, so listeners, if you've been following this show from the beginning, then you know what Secret Origins is. But if this is your first episode of the podcast, and Batman's got quite the cult following, so it's definitely possible someone is listening to this episode first. Well, then I should probably take a brief moment to explain Secret Origins. 
If you didn't already know, this comic was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling or retelling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this book. And not nearly enough of these comics had covers drawn by the legendary Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise, Praise be, his, be name. his name. So yeah, we're talking about Batman. And Chris, last time I had you on, when we did talk about Superman, you mentioned that for you, the Superman the movie in 1978, that was your Star Wars. That was right. sort of the film that changed your, your world, sort of uh, in terms of like pop culture and you know, fiction. Yes, well, for me, the movie was Batman in 1989. Mm. Like, that came out the summer before I was in second grade, so I was about eight, not even eight years old at the time. And yet, somehow, I saw that movie nine times in the theater. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I just kept on finding people to take me to it. Like, one, like the first time I saw it, I saw it opening night, and again, I was like seven or eight years old. But I saw opening night with a friend of mine and his parents who took us, and they took us to a late show. Um, but and we like the the theater was packed. We couldn't even sit next to each other. Like his his parents were sitting in the back row. He and I are towards the front, but we're not even sitting next to each other. So I'm watching it virtually by myself. And I think as soon as it started, my eyes never wavered away from the screen. Um, and after that, I would get my mom to take me one day. I would get my older brother to take me a different day. I would get my dad to take me one day. I would go with cousins. I would just glom on to friends who I wasn't really friends with. But I would just like hang out for, with them for the day. And I was like, hey, you should ask your parents if they'll take us to see Batman. <laughs> um, and yeah, somehow I managed to see it in the theater nine times. And I, I, I had memorized every line of dialogue. That, that just it, – it changed me. And based on that – I would, like, at the time, like, our, our local station, WGN, was rerunning episodes of the uh, the Adam West 60s show. Mm -hmm. And even though I knew that they were drastically different in tone and feel, I loved them both equally. Well, no, I didn't love them equally. I definitely loved the movie more. But I still appreciate I got I liked the camp element of Adam West and Burt Ward and Cesar Romero and Frank Gorshin, all those guys. Um, so... Yeah, Batman from Jump almost has always been my favorite character in popular fiction. Um, and I know that the Irredeemable Shag, who's been on the show before, has said everybody goes through a Batman phase. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> I, I, I understand that because there have been times when I thought, maybe Batman's not my favorite. Maybe I do like this other character. But it's usually because I'm frustrated with the Batman fandom. It's usually because the character has been become so mainstream and everybody thinks that their version of Batman is the correct Batman. Right. And I think it's like, no, you need, you need some distance. You need to understand that the Dark Knight can be your version of Batman. So can Batman Brave and the Bold. So can Batman the Animated Series. So can the old Dick Sprang comics. Mm -hmm. It's like, he, he, and that's why he's so special. He's such a mutable character. He... He exists in all of these different forms. So. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and, and I'd like to – I'm kind of glad you brought that up. I was actually going to bring that up. Batman is my favorite fictional character as well. 
Uh, even though Superman, the movie, like changed my life, and that is my favorite version of Superman, uh, Batman was already a huge, and Superman was part of my life too, but I mean, Batman was, you know, it was Adam West. It was, it was the comics. It was the Super Friends. It was the Filmation cartoon. Uh, you know, it, I don't know, just, you know, from, from the get go, Batman and Robin were my favorite. I mean, cause I'm a big Dick Grayson fan. So, Me too. uh, and any, any, ver- well, almost any version of Robin, but particularly Dick Grayson, but the, the whole notion, I mean, there's this kind of, there's this kind of backlash amongst hardcore geeks against Batman because he is so popular in the outside media. So he's so omnipresent and I think partially because he has gotten so much media attention and it doesn't help now that Superman's second movie was basically stolen from him to make it a Batman movie first with right. Superman in it, you know. Uh, but the, the whole and, and I'm not trying to beat up Shag by any. Well, yeah, I'm trying to beat up Shag. Not, not, <laughs> but but uh, it's not just Shag, but I've heard on other podcasts people just ripping on Batman. And there's things that, you know, I know the whole infallible God Batman is gotten gone to ridiculous uh, proportions. It's just it's 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 insane. But you know there is a place for that version of Batman. But like you said, there's a place for the the very human Batman, like we'll see in this story. Uh, there's a place for the the even the goofy, of course, the '50s goofy Batman. Grant Morrison kind of claimed uh, as his own and did his own thing with it. And uh, all of those versions, you know, this has obviously been said many times before. But it's okay. For for go- hardcore comic fans to still like Batman, I swear, you, you can you can come out and say I like Batman. Batman's okay. Batman is my friend. You know, I mean, it's, we don't we don't have to say oh, I don't like Batman anymore. I grew out of that. It's like well, okay, you 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 you're saying you don't like Batman, but you like you know you like this the character and this character. Then you're you're splitting hairs, dude. You know, I mean, uh, and, 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 and oh, go ahead. Now, even I think even among the geek culture, as you're saying. And this is going to sound more harsh than I mean it to, but there's there's this kind of elitist hipster backlash against against Batman. It's like you tell somebody that Batman is your favorite superhero, and it's like it's similar to saying, "Well, yeah, the Beatles are my favorite band, right?" Or, or the Rolling Stones are my favorite band, and and they kind of look at you and like roll their eyes, like, "Oh, have you ever even heard the Afghan Wigs?" It's like, right? Okay. You know, there's a reason these guys are as popular as they are. <laughs> yes, yes. So. Thank you. And and you know, and, and that kind of goes hand in hand with with my problem. And I've heard this on several podcasts, and and from people I like, and people uh, who I consider friends, and people whose shows I enjoy that have really, you know, kind of went went off the rails about people that 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 aren't hardcore geek fans, but but wear the t-shirts that go to the movies. And they question their, you know, like they question their cred, you know, and mm-hmm. and that kind of goes along with, well, if you like Batman this much, you're not in deep enough, you know, you're not you're not a true fan. It's like, you know what? If you if all you ever did was watch Adam West and go see Batman '89, and you like Batman, you're a Batman fan to me. You know, you don't you don't have to have you don't have to know who Bill Finger is. That's great if you do. You don't have to you don't have to have you know, Batman's height and weight memorized from who's who, you know, <laughs> right. you don't have to know every version of the Batmobile. Uh, you know, I mean, right. That, you know, that's it, taking it to the opposite of the opposite extreme. Right. Whereas not limiting your appreciation of Batman, but thinking if you don't like any version of Batman, 
then you're not a true fan. It's like, no, that's not being a fan. That's being a fanatic. Right. right. Like, that, that is equally destructive, just right. at the opposite end of the spectrum. Right. It's, but it's just kind of a shame that it, Batman has, it's, it's like, he's so, so obviously popular. And, and I would say, you know, right now the, some of the Marvel characters are probably more popular because of the movies and, and because they're more accessible uh, to kids and a version that's out there. But as far as the DC characters, and I, and I do hate to see that Batman has eclipsed Superman so much as the most popular character to the outside world. I, I, I don't, even as a huge Batman fan, I don't feel that's quite right. I think Superman should always be the, the guy at DC Comics, the main the top billing, the the headliner, the the anchor, uh, the center well, of the DC universe. Well, Batman is an outsider. I mean, he, he right. represents that dark outsider culture in a way. So when that becomes mainstream, it is sort of flipping everything on its head. It's right. Like now, now the the antihero, the rebel. That's if that's what you're promoting as the as what is the most popular and the most profitable then what is the mainstream? Where, where does that leave for the, the tentpole hero like Superman? Right, um, right, yep. And I think yep. DC hasn't been able to answer that for 30 years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but as far as Batman 89, you know, it's, it's kind of it's interesting because as we get into this story, this harkens back to the, the golden age of Batman, obviously, mm-hmm. and captures that feeling well, which... I really think that movie did a good job of capturing that feel of the the forties Batman. You know, the the golden age, the golden age feel, uh, the film noir, uh, the the mysterioso as as, as yes. Bob King would say, yes. feeling of things. And uh, so it's kind of neat. And, and also, the artist of this ended up drawing the strip that came out of the Batman movie, the comic strip. So right. it's, it kind of all comes back around. Right. The, that's absolutely the word I was going for, the Mysterioso effect of that first Batman movie. And and I love The Dark Knight. I think as a film, The Dark Knight is better than the original Batman. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's they're, almost, they're two different genres of film. Right. The Dark Knight is a crime thriller that just so happens to have the character in the cape and cowl. Right. Whereas Batman, you have that Tim Burton before Tim Burton like fell in love with his own weirdness <laughs> where he actually used his weirdness for something kind of artistic and pure. Um, but it's, it's atmospheric and it it mm-hmm. has that old world kind of, this doesn't fit in with our world. This is weird and just outside the norm. Um, and you get that. And there is a Batman that belongs in that world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And they, they just tapped into that and, so yeah, I was again just a child when I saw that movie, but it blew me away. And like again, I, that summer I memorized every part of that movie, and I could act it out for my friends at school. And it, you know, if I hadn't done that, I might have gotten girlfriends at an earlier age. But you know, these are the choices we make. Yeah, I was I was about uh, let's see when that came out. I was uh, let's see, I was fourteen when that came out. So. Uh, so I went, uh, yeah, I went to it several times. I think you beat me. I think I only saw it three times in the theater, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it was just, it was just so amazing that to see, and, and, you know, and I, and, and I think I said that on, on Supermates at one point, I never, I never hated the Adam West series. Like some fans do some fans go through this, there's the, the, these steps that you go through with the Adam West series. You think it's a straight adventure when you're a kid and then you suddenly realize, wait a minute, this is silly. 
And and then you realize, well, wait, it's you go through your teen years with it. It's why is it silly? And then you come to terms with it. At, some do at some point and say, well, it's silly on purpose and it's it works on several levels. And right. and I never hated it, but it was just it was it was so neat to see. It was kind of like even though I know the Dark Knight Returns, Dark Knight had come out, the Frank Miller Dark Knight uh, had come out, and and so that had made a media splash. But it was kind of neat to say this is more the comic book Batman that the public doesn't know when it's on the screen, you know, and, it's, and we thought it was really dark then. Of course, now it doesn't <laughs> seem very dark <laughs> compared to the, you know, Batman v Superman trailer, which is, you know, is depressing. Uh, so it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't seem dark, but. Well, there's, but, there's dark in atmosphere and there's dark in soul. Right. That's <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> yeah. There, yeah. The, the, that's the thing. The, 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 the Burton movie had that, it still had the heroic fanfare and, right. and, you know, those moments of gosh, wow action and, you know, Batman saving the day and, and the, the Danny Elfman score and, and everything. So that, that, uh, which was another part that, that evoked the, the you know, the golden age uh, story. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. I'm, I like, Especially, you know, Dark Knight Rises has got its problems, but the the first two Nolan films I really like. But I, I have to say, as they went along, it seemed they they lost the Batman atmosphere, which yeah. the Burton movie has in Spades. You know, I mean, I know Batman, you know, but just the things they did with his cape and right. and and uh, just the the shadows and and the the trying to make Batman seem almost supernatural. You know, which is right. something you get in. Marshall Rogers artwork that we'll get to in this story. Right. And I will never defend the Joel Schumacher Batman movies, but I understand what he was going for. I mm-hmm. understand the attempt to to bring back a more campy, kid-friendly and still very expressionistic Batman movies. I mean, you look at sort of the art direction and the cinematography in those movies. That is a different kind of weirdness that would be really beautiful to look at if the movies weren't really crappy. Um, <laughs> yeah. And they're yeah. bad on every level. And I remember, I remember like George Clooney, like took the brunt for it. And he said, yeah, I ruined Batman for a couple of yeah. years because I was so bad. It's like, okay, you were, but you were not the biggest problem with those movies. No, so, no, he could, he could have been a good Batman in a movie that bad. I mean, you know, it's right. that I don't blame Clooney. And I actually, there's part of me that still likes a good chunk of Batman forever. I, I, I feel like they kind of had some of that feeling of the story slightly after, you know, when Robin came in. They they kind of caught some of the later, well, still in, early in the Golden Age, but after Batman was past his, you know, Grim Avenger loner uh, phase. Uh, I think, the, you know, even though Robin was obviously quite a bit older, but I, I think they c- captured some of that in that movie, and there's parts of it. That that I still like, you know, when at the end when they run out in front of the bat signal to you, I, I'm sorry, that still gives me chills. I can't help it. <laughs> sure, it's a great moment. I waited the whole movie to see that moment. <laughs> right. So I mean, you know, and that that evokes that brings it all back together. That evokes those golden age covers. That evokes the opening to the uh, Adam West TV series uh, the, from the movie when they're running down the street trying to get to the UN building. You know, I mean, it's it, it evokes all those things and. Uh, and that's that's the great, like you said. There's no, I, I can't think of any other character, uh, except maybe Mickey Mouse, maybe that you can take and put in as many different environments and different stories and different different types of stories and and have them work 
like Batman. You can take him out, and some people say, well, he doesn't work out in space with the Justice League. Well, there's, you know, yeah. 50, yeah, years of, 50 years of stories to prove you wrong. You know, so, um, you know and, and, you know, he works just gritty crime drama. He, you know, he works in the straight superhero story. Uh, so, you know, th- that's the thing. I don't know what it is. It was just this, this, and, you know, Batman as he stands is just a mixture of a lot of different influences on Bob Kane and Bill Finger. Let's of course not forget Bill Finger. Absolutely. Uh, and, uh, so, you know, it's interesting to think that a character that was an amalgamation of so many different elements of the shadow of Zorro of, of a little bit of maybe perhaps of actually from the bat and, and things like that, that, um, that they mixed all that together and came up with something that could be adapted because, you know, they've not had a whole lot of luck of, with updating the shadow. Uh, and, you know, they've had Zorro's always set in the past. Any t- attempt they ever try to, you know, bring him forward doesn't seem to work. Um, so it's, it's kind of interesting that, that he has, survived and and thrived and been able to be adapted because I can't really think of too many other characters that have been. Yeah, I'm hard-pressed to. I think I, I wasn't even thinking of Mickey Mouse, but he's probably the only other person <laughs> I could think of that, uh, in terms of like popular culture fictional characters that would have that sort of resonance and that mutability to kind of just be everywhere and all at once. Um, and I think... It feels weird to say this because I love the comics so much and because the Batman comics were some of the first ones that I read. But if I was to kind of pin down my sort of definitive Batman, mm-hmm. like the what what feels the most like Batman to me, even though I just went on right, saying that I, I accept all of them, I don't necessarily appreciate them to the same degree. But the most Batman kind of essence that I, I would glimpse to – I would point to Batman, the animated series. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because even though it was subtle and it did kind of have a pretty consistent feel, there were some of those episodes that were sillier than others. Some of them leaned more towards the kind of broad comedy mm-hmm. and some of them were more personal, dark, emotional stories. You know, some yeah. of them had big, crazy supervillains and some of them were just crime dramas. Um, when you, if you look at the first week that when when that the series was aired, um, mm-hmm. if you look at the order that the episodes were released on that first Monday to Friday, it started with Mister Freeze, yeah, which is you know you'd never see that character in a Chris Nolan Batman film, no. But they still got to a very deep and personal emotional core of a character that was best known from the campy Adam West TV show. Right, and they made that character so awesome that a lot, like people, fell in love with that version of Mister Freeze. I did for a mm-hmm. while. He was my favorite Batman villain just because of that episode. And after that, you had the two-parter that introduced Clayface, and that was another like a very kind of emotional, more nuanced caricature of a villain. And then you had the story with um, the gangster who's trying to quit, and his his old buddy the priest who's trying to like talk him out of that. And they have all those right. aspects. It's like that has nothing to do with the Joker or with two face or any of these characters. It's just a crime drama and it's mm-hmm. thrilling. It's as good as any of those others. And then you topped off that week, that Friday with uh, the Joker episode where the Joker's favor, which is the best Joker episode, I think. Yeah. Um, with <laughs> Ed Begley Jr. Doing the voice of uh, some fat guy who owes yeah. Joker a favor. Charlie Collins. Charlie yeah. Collins. That's, yeah, that was the first time we saw Harley. And I remember her saying the name this way, Charlie. Oh, God. 
So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, I love that show that came out just at the right time. And it, it got every sort of Batman that I wanted in that episode. It was, right. it had that sort of art deco feel that went back to the golden age and felt very classic, but also very timeless. It could have been in the future. It could have been in the past. It was, it was just so well done. Right. I, I, I agree. The, the animated series is, is my favorite because it did distill so many different elements of Batman throughout his history. And even Batman's character, like uh, you said, Clayface, you know, you had the Batman that was very compassionate in some episodes, mm-hmm. uh, like trying to help the, the, the gangster and the one with the priest and, and, and all that. But then you had the later Clayface ep- episode, Mudslide, where yeah. that lady's trying to actually help cure him. Yeah. And Batman comes in and stops it because it, he's in grim Avenger mode. Right. <laughs> and actually, if Batman had just stepped back for five minutes, he could have arrested Matt Hagen, right. took him to jail, and it been over. But no, he because he's being a jerk, he ends up, you know, Clayface dissipates into water at the end of the episode virtually dies i mean it's not yeah. until like the second ver- volume of that cartoon when they brought it back and they just completely redesigned it that's when they brought him back but it the end of that yeah. episode gave you the impression clayface died right and it, it's, it's batman's fault because he yeah. wouldn't he wouldn't listen he was in that over obsessed avenger mode and and but you know that's that's the thing that was great about it is you had these multiple layers you could interpret i mean even though they touched on these different facets of even batman's personality it still worked because it was just so well done. You had such a great cast. I mean, you got had Kevin Conroy as Batman, who's everybody's hears his voice in their head when they read comics. So, I mean, yeah, that is, that is the ultimate version of, and and in fact, the whole Tim Bruce, Tim universe, the DC animated universe, that is to my notion, the, the best version because it does pull in so much from the comics, but even take things like Mr. Freeze who, you know, other than the TV show, if it hadn't been, if he hadn't been on the TV show, the old Adam West show three times, nobody would have ever cared about Mr. Freeze again, you know. So they took a villain that, you know, the comics didn't even really ever know what to do with him. They'd use him so often just because they felt like they had to because he had been on the TV show. And uh, it's it's just amazing what they did with characters like him and the Mad Hatter. And uh, then they create characters like Harley and... And, you know, I mean, here Harley's going to be in the Suicide Squad movie in live action, you know. And, and I mean, it's not the way I'd like to see her, but there she is, you know. Uh, so it's, it's uh, yeah, I, I, I won't disagree with you. And I'm a big fan of the very earliest Batman, like the kind we're going to talk about here, mm-hmm. the Dick Sprang era, the, of course, the, the, the even the, the new look, the Carmine Infantino era, the, the Neil Adams, of course, everybody loves that. And yeah. of course, Marshall Rogers, Don Newton. I, there's so many different Batman eras, the Jim Aparo's and all that, but animated series is, if you, that's the, that's the where everything's all poured into the, right into the pot and it's the best tasting stew. You know, <laughs> that's yeah, yeah. kind of the way it works. We'll be back with our review of the origin of the golden age Batman after a short break. Don't go away. A secret governmental organization operating behind the scenes. Task Force X. Task Force X is an off-the-books government strike team made up of convicts with no hope for release, serving as expendable agents for impossible missions. Succeed, and I'll shave time off your sentences. 
If we don't. You'll be dead. Any other stupid questions? The Suicide Squad ran by Amanda Waller. I'm Amanda Waller. I'm here to indoctrinate you convicts into our special forces. And there's Checkmate, ran by Harry Stein. This is the tales of DC Comics, Suicide Squad, and Checkmate. Mostly monthly from Headspeaks. Available on iTunes under Task Force X and under Headcasts over at headspeaks.com. We can also be found on Facebook and Google Plus under Task Force X. Task Force X. Check it out. Or you'll answer to the wall. Nobody screws the wall! probably actually start talking about this comic so let's get into that the cover for secret origins issue six is drawn again like i said by jose luis garcia lopez praise Praise his name his name um and it is a split cover on one side featuring halo and on the other side featuring the golden age batman what do you think about this cover chris well, I mean, I don't, I don't think you're legally allowed to complain about Jose Luis uh, Garcia Lopez. We don't Praise have to do it again. Praise <laughs> his name. <laughs> Rob says you only have to do it once per episode. I'm just, I'm just saying. But well, I don't think Rob is a real fan. Then <laughs> <laughs> he started this, and we're going to turn against him. Uh, but, but uh, yeah, you know, I think it's great. I mean, it's, it's definitely a cool way to. I remember picking this up off the stands and being surprised that there were two origins in it. I'm like, oh wow, and it, of course it was higher. But I'm like, well, I'm, I'm going to buy this because it's got Batman in it, you know, yeah. of course. Uh, and, uh, you know, and you know, Halo's no problem there either. But uh, and I think it's kind of interesting, too, that it's, you know, it's it's kind of a Batman. You think it'd be kind of a Batman and the Outsiders thing, but it's really not because this Batman uh, had nothing to do with the Outsiders. But uh, but, yeah, it's just a beautiful cover. I mean, I like how the, you know, Halo's uh, obviously out during the day. It's there's birds flying and. The sky's blue, and behind Batman, you get the the dark sky and the cityscape. And Except the, Batman is still very brightly lit in this image because the lights on the buildings behind him are sort of brightly washed yellow. So, right, even right. though even though his half is supposed to be in darkness, he's still very he's still very brightly lit up. Right, and it's it's interesting that uh, Lo, uh, Garcia Lopez draws the Batman with the uh, the shorter ears of like the the later golden age Batman that, that would become the standard version of the earth Two Batman, the look that we would associate with him more. Right. Uh, even though he doesn't appear that way in this issue, but, uh, but yeah, it's a beautiful cover. Yeah. I just, uh, you know, great way to herald the, the switch over to the kind of deluxe format of the, of the title. Yeah. All right. So peeling back the cover and getting into this issue, 
Secret Origins, starring the Golden Age Batman, was written by Roy Thomas, penciled and colored by Marshall Rogers, inked by Terry Austin, and lettered by Kerry Spiegel. Bob Greenberger acted as coordinating editor with Thomas as creative editor, which probably means Roy Thomas told Greenberger, sure, you can check my script and give me notes after the book is printed. <laughs> probably so. Yeah. And this retelling of Batman's origin is based on the classic stories by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. Yes. The opening splash page shows Batman standing on a roof with a large crescent moon looming in the night sky over his head. The text on the left explains, In the beginning, a criminal killed his parents. In the end, a criminal killed him. In between those two acts of dread finality, for 40 years he fought the forces of violence armed with nothing but his gloved fists and his keen brain. He's forgotten now. The very earth that spawned him swallowed up by cosmic catastrophe and replaced by another earth, a newer universe. But that's today. And today didn't get to where it is without yesterday. In the year 1924, wealthy socialites Thomas and Martha Wayne walk home from from the Palace movie theater with their young son, Bruce. Along the way, they are stopped by an armed mugger who demands Martha Wayne's necklace. Desperately trying to defend his family, Thomas makes a run at the man and is shot twice at point-blank range. A dumbstruck Bruce can only watch as the mugger goes for Martha's necklace, ripping it off her neck. In the struggle, Martha collapses to the ground by her husband, suffering a fatal heart attack. The mugger flees into the night, leaving Bruce Wayne on the ground, huddled over his dead parents. The child inherits the family fortune, but the money is nothing compared to the anguish, the loneliness, and the rage he feels over their murder. At night, he kneels by his bed in the candlelight and makes a sacred vow. And I swear by the spirits of my parents to avenge their deaths by spending the rest of my life warring on all criminals. Please, dear God, help me keep my promise. I'll do anything. Years pass. Bruce attends Hudson Academy and then goes to college. But while he excels in academics, he makes few friends and has hardly any social life. The trauma of his parents' murder has left him hesitant to engage socially or emotionally with new people. Instead, he throws himself completely into his studies, where he masters numerous sciences, technology, physical training and conditioning, and even acting. I'm sure that's a great source of pride for all those bastards who minored in theater tech at college. (laughs) During a school production of Hamlet, Bruce meets a budding ingenue, Julie Madison. Surprisingly, Bruce lets her into his heart, and they fall in love. While she plans to pursue a career on the stage, Bruce tells her he plans to join the Gotham Police Force, um, using his scientific acumen and theater skills to help law enforcement. Bruce and Julie graduate in 1939, as America is starting to pull itself out of the Great Depression, even while another world war looms on the horizon. Julie goes to New York to make it big on Broadway, while Bruce returns to Gotham City. For a couple weeks, he broods about his future— Julie basically tells him she can't be in a relationship with a cop who will always be putting himself in danger. Bruce doesn't want to lose Julie, but he also can't imagine not serving the people of Gotham and trying to keep them safe. He decides to test his commitment to the pledge he made as a child by doing some amateur vigilante crime fighting before he sends his application to the police force. He realizes he'll need a costume, and figuring the criminals are superstitious and cowardly, he wants the costume to strike fear. At that moment, a bat flies through the window of his penthouse, inspiring the new identity that Bruce Wayne must become. 
He hires a pair of tailors to fashion the Batman costume, but he only interacts with them while disguised as an old man with a bushy white beard, so they have no idea who they're working for. On one fateful night, the Batman makes his debut on the rooftops of Gotham. He catches a thief in the act and knocks the man onto a large spoon that's part of a billboard sign. Trust me, it makes sense when you see it. <laughs> the thief moans over his broken leg, and when Batman approaches to check on the man, he gets clubbed in the head. The thief, a man named Slugsy Kyle, escapes on foot. Clearly, his leg injury was a fake. But Batman won't be so easily defeated. He uses evidence found at the scene and his scientific background to track Slugsy back to an abandoned glassworks factory. Slugsy is ready for him and drops a net on the Batman when he enters the factory. But Batman proves to be more resourceful and escapes from the net. At last, he catches the criminal and leaves him tied up under a lamppost for the police. Pinned to Slugsy's jacket is a note that reads, This is for you. The time has come for the Batman. And that's only the first half of this story. But uh, let's take a break there, Chris. What did you think so far? Oh, I think the opening's great. The the splash page is, is just beautiful. Uh, we'll get into my, you know, man crush on Marshall Rogers later. <laughs> but, but, uh, <laughs> but, yeah, it's just, uh, it's it's gorgeous. And I love the, just the text on the the front page about you know the the that the, uh, the day didn't get to where it is without yesterday. I mean that's just a that's just a great opening for it. And you know it's it's uh, it's interesting that uh, nowhere does this say Batman created by Bob Kane. It says you know based on the classic stories by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. So they get yes. around <laughs> saying yeah, <laughs> it's pretty sneaky. <laughs> Exactly. That's that's got to be Roy Thomas saying, "Okay, I know what we're contracted to say, but let's give the real man his due." Right, and I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah me me too. Um, yeah, looking at that text again, it's a it's very similar to how the Golden Age Superman story opened up with issue one. Right, and again, it still feels like Roy Thomas is. Oh, it's 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 very bittersweet, and it's sort of. It's a it's a love letter to these characters and this past history that doesn't exist anymore in the modern continuity. Right. But yeah, looking at that that image by Marshall Rogers, and I think I think it's very easy for people to draw Batman. He is not a difficult character to capture and and represent. It's easy to draw Batman. And if I was an artist, I could say that with more authority. I'm a horrible artist, but <laughs> from what I've heard. Drawing Batman is not complicated, but really capturing and being an outstanding Batman artist, to do that, I think you have to be able to draw Gotham, and you need to be able to draw Batman in the element that is Gotham City. Right. Um, because right. The, two, the two can't be separated. Right. And when you look at artists like Marshall Rogers and Jim Aparo, Neil Adams, Norm Brayfogle, even Gene Colan, they knew how to capture Batman in his city mm-hmm. and bring that atmosphere to life because it is a it is a city that's not New York. It's not Chicago. It's not any other city. It has its own life. Um, and I think the great Batman artists understand that. Yes, definitely. And Marshall Rogers was actually an architecture student, so um, he, uh, he was probably, he was one of the best at actually, you know, drawing the cityscapes, uh, to where they were very convincing. I mean, I think about that splash page during his run in detective when, right before he goes to see Silver St. Cloud, I think it's in the uh, first part of the laughing fish, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and and there's this tiny, fairly tiny Batman in the middle of this splash page, but and his capes billowing about him. But the city around him is just, I mean, it's just breathtaking. You know, the the amount of detail. He's like the George Perez of architecture. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, it's fa- it's fantastic. Yeah, and and uh, you know, we'll get into this more later. But you can even tell on the first the first page. I I will I will go out on a limb here and say for my personal taste no one ever drew batman's cape better than marshall rogers mm. I, I mean even more than neil adams i know that's oh my gosh he said, <laughs> i said it people uh the thing with you know the i'll thing say with, it right now i hate neil adams and i think he's a hack <laughs> i so do not think that but <laughs> just to let you off the mat just let me off the hook <laughs> yeah. send all email to ryan at no i'm just kidding uh but yeah yeah, the uh, the thing with Rogers and, and Batman's cape is it feels like it, I mean you could just feel the weight of it. Mm-hmm. It it feels like it's a cloak over his shoulders, and he almost always drew the cape draped over his shoulders, which is something the animated series picked up on. You know, they almost always had if Batman wasn't like actively moving, the cape was over his shoulders, right? Uh, and that's just something that that I don't know. It just makes it feel like it's a real piece of cloth. And he does the the dramatic sweeping things with it throughout this and throughout all this Batman work. But, and oh, okay, it might elongate slightly, but it doesn't go, you know, Todd McFarlane crazy or anything right. by any means. No. But it feels like a real cape. And that, that yeah, just, to me, that adds to it. I, I agree. You, and you said it right. It, you feel the weight of the cape, just the way it kind of folds and flies and the way it hangs over over the front of his shoulders and chest. Yeah, I love it. Um, something else that I noticed when I was when I was reading this about that front page, I think we we very often see like in pictures of nighttime landscapes, it just sort of becomes so often to see a full moon in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if you really compared that, you'd think that there was a full moon every night of the year, based <laughs> yeah. on how often they get it gets drawn. Rogers chose to draw a crescent moon in this case. And mm-hmm. I, I like that for being different, but also the positioning of where it is just behind his head, it feels like a scythe blade or a sickle or something that there's there's something very ominous about it right behind his neck. Like mm. like this is like it's like an executioner's blade or something, or like the blade of death. Like it's saying this right. Batman is gone now. Right. Um, he, 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 it's, it's foretelling his death, which by the end of crisis has already happened. Right. Well, he's already been dead for eight years and now he's really gone. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's true. I hadn't even thought of that. That's uh that's a nice, uh, yeah, that's, that's a nice little bit. Maybe it's telegraphing a bit there. Yeah. That's, that's cool. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's telegraphing uh, Batman year two with the Reaper and, <laughs> and detective in a few months now. I don't think so. <laughs> maybe, so no, no. Yeah, maybe, but not. Uh, of course the, you know, you get the, the murder of the Waynes and interestingly enough, uh, Thomas said, uh, in the, in the back of the, of the book when he was talking about Batman's origin that he, in the, both this and in Who's Who number two, which featured Batman and Batman of Earth One and Earth Two, he had uh, worked with Lynn Wein to work out that the Earth Two Batman's mother, Martha Wayne, had died of a heart attack, not a gunshot wound. I mean, in, in the first origin in Detective Thirty Three, she died of a gunshot wound. They were both shot. 
But at some point in when the origin of Batman from Batman number 47, June, July, 1948, they had decided that she died of a heart attack, probably because, you know, comics were getting more sanitized and it didn't seem. You couldn't have a woman be shot and killed. Right, exactly. And of course, that's the storyline where they fleshed out Batman's origin and he actually uh, captures Joe Chill. But, Uh, but, Roy Thomas does cleverly have Thomas Wayne shot twice. So you still mm. get the two gunshots. Mm, you know, that's that, true. That when you see the mugger firing, you get the blam, blam. So even though she dies of a heart attack, you still get the two gunshots and the two bodies on the ground. So yes. I think, I think he's, he's kind of straddling the line and giving paying service to both preferences for the deaths. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, the, the, the Wayne murders, we've, you know, at this point, you didn't see him every month like you did. You did from the 80s on once Frank Miller did it. Right. Uh, I mean, already the Dark Knights had already come out. The You know, I think they're on issue number four as this issue comes out. Uh, but, uh, you know, that hadn't soaked in yet. So, you know, you didn't have everybody wanting to do a origin recap. And, you know, every time I close my eyes, I see my parents die. And so you didn't you didn't have that all the time. So this was probably the first, this is probably the first time I'd seen Batman's parents killed. Cause I hadn't got the dark Knight uh, yet. I got it in when it first went to trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, this first time I'd seen him killed um, in a comic since the untold legend of the Batman, you know, more than likely, you know, yeah. uh, it's, which had been like six years earlier. Uh, so, it, you know, it's, it wasn't that common. It's kind of, it, you know, it's, it's sad to say, but it's lost a little bit of its, uh, if it's impact because we're just so used to it, it's like Krypton exploding, you know, it's just, we know it's going to blow up. So, you know, it's like, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of sad that it's, we're, de- we're desensitized to it. We've seen it so many times. Uh, but uh, I thought it was handled really well here, you know, and it, and uh, Rogers does a really good job of, of cap- capturing the time period. This, this feels like what you would, I mean, he's got the clothes and, and uh, just his very art style just just fits both this era here and then when we get up into the late 30s well, there's just a, very well. There's a very, very time-specific Easter egg hidden in the first panel of the first page. Um, and I'm sure it's Roy Thomas being very, very clever. Um, but when they're leaving the theater, Martha Wayne is talking about the actor Rudolph Valentino. Mm-hmm. And if this was in 1924 when this when they're murdered, I actually looked this up on the Internet Movie Database. In 1924, Valentino starred in the film The Eagle, which is about an officer in the Russian army who dons a mask and a costume to become a vigilante called the Black Eagle. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it's like, so he never says that this idea inspired Bruce Wayne to become Batman. But if you know if if you know that weird obscure bit of film history, then you can see, hmm, the night his parents died, Bruce Wayne saw a movie about a costumed vigilante. And I know in other interpretations of in other media, they've had Batman going to see Zorro, right? Um, or or you know the Grey Ghost or something like that, and that was sort right. of his inspiration. Right. I think you know, and as far as I know, the Zorro angle came up with uh, with the Dark Knight. Because Batman, Bruce Wayne's like watching TV, yep. flipping through the channels, and he lands on the mark Tyrone Power and the Mark of Zorro, and he's like, "Oh no, you know," and right. and then he starts freaking out and right. flashing back, and and you know that was just shortly before this. I probably I'm thinking probably that this is a coincidence because I doubt that you know I, I, 
Thomas had probably seen the first issue of The Dark Knight when this was published. I know Dark Knight 4 was a little behind, so maybe he had. But it's interesting that they both went to that in that same direction because that was before Zorro became the movie that they always went to. You know, I mean, I'm pretty sure that 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 started with The Dark Knight. So that's that's really cool. I'm glad you looked that up. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, thinking about Batman Year One, uh, which I love, I, I I I think that that book at least has aged better than all of Frank Miller's other work for DC. Yes, definitely. Um, some of them didn't start off great. Some of them were hated as soon as they were released, especially the more recent stuff. Um, yes. I think The Dark Knight Returns went through a period where it just didn't seem like it had aged well, and there was there was more backlash against it. And I think it's I think it's it's fine, um, but I still think Year One holds up really well. Mm-hmm. There's one element of the Batman origin that is sorely missing from Year One, and it is this moment when Bruce Wayne makes the promise by candlelight. Yes. And Rogers just nails this in these bottom panels where you see Bruce by his bed praying to God. I mean, this isn't, this is a serious act. Yeah. He's praying to God and asking for God's help to turn him into this instrument of justice or vengeance. Um, and you see, you see the transition in in the third, or well, because it's, it's it's like panel five or something. You see Bruce Wayne over his parents' bodies, his eyes are shut and he's crying. He's got tears coming down. And then on the bottom panel, his head is almost in the same position, but the eyes are open and they are bone dry, and he is just resolute. And half of his face is in the shadows, and it's just a strong image of how yeah. determined he looks. Um, and and this is where you see this kid never recovered. I mean, no. that, that is the only justification for why he would grow up all these years later and put on a costume. Right. And, go, and going back to the Joel Schumacher Batmans, when he was coming out, he said, like in an interview, he said, well, he wanted his Batman to be happier because Batman would have eventually gotten over his parents' deaths. <laughs> and he and he would have you know found he would have reconciled that everybody does eventually, and even when I was a kid, I heard him say that like on an interview, and I was like, no, he wouldn't. That's, <laughs> that's why he's Batman. If right. if he ever really got over their deaths, he wouldn't be. He wouldn't put on the costume. He would recognize right. that this isn't rational. I've got other ways to spend my money to fight crime. Right. Like, and this you see it in these images of of Bruce Wayne at his bedside. With a candle in the background, it's, and again, just like just the fact that he says, "Please, dear God, help me keep my promise." I mean, a, a lot of superheroes tend to exist in kind of a secular world, and this is him like sort of wrecking, like breaking from that tradition, right? And and I think just because of that, just because it's so different, it's more powerful, right? Yeah, and, yeah, I, I agree, and and you know, and and uh, just the look on his face, I mean, you know. Of course, some people think that, you know, the moment that the Waynes died, Batman was born or, you know, his, his, his personality changed or, or or it was this moment when he made the vow. You know, sometimes it's here. Sometimes it's at their grave, uh, you know, and, and like the Silver Age, the like the Untold Legend of the Batman and, and Batman Year Two, it's it's at their grave site instead of, you know, at his bed by candlelight. But that that moment that that he does that, he's he set himself on the path to become Batman. And you, even the way Rogers draws the difference between his face, he's got his eyebrows arched down and mm-hmm. he's looking up. He's, his eyes are almost blank, you know? So yeah. it's, 
it's like he's you could interpret that he already is Batman to a point, you know. Right. He's the he's the proto Batman at this at this stage, which is which is really neat. Yeah. Uh, you get Uncle Philip Wayne, which uh, was a uh, Silver Age edition, but they you know they put him in here as the because Bruce had to go to somebody as right. as his guardian. Uh, they never really said who he went to in the in any of the Golden Age origins that I could could find so um that was another thing that was in the uh the untold legend of the batman which of course was the earth one batman but uh, obviously there's quite a few similarities between the two so yeah i i noticed that that was actually i, I remember seeing that section being like hmm there's no alfred in this story no um yeah because alfred alfred came in what was it, like batman number 16 i think he was uh you know and for years you know alfred as the caretaker of bruce as a young man was another Miller thing right, uh, right. that didn't exist before. Uh, I think they hinted at it in dark Knight and then cemented it in, in year one, obviously um, that he had, he had raised Bruce after his parents were killed. Um, you know, Alfred comes to the, to Wayne Manor. He's Alfred Beagle on earth too, because that was his original surname. Uh, and he's a portly fellow who uh, yep. he, his, his father had been the Wayne's Butler and he came to uh to be their butler and, and Dick and Bruce were like, uh, how are we going to get rid of this guy? And, uh, you know, eventually, uh, you know, he stumbled onto the fact they were Batman and Robin and helped him when Batman was shot. Uh, so, you know, this is, uh, this is definitely pre Alfred <laughs> quite, quite a bit. What was his name in the sixties show? Was it Alfred Pennyworth there or was it? I don't think they ever said his name. Uh, that that I know of, he was just Alfred Bruce Wayne's faithful butler. You know how they always, you know, like Dick Grayson was his youthful ward. You know they couldn't say one without the other. <laughs> it's Dick Grayson, youthful ward of Bruce Wayne. You know, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. How do you, you, take, how you get a ward these days? I, I don't know. I, I I think that kind of may have gone away. I don't know how you get a ward. I mean, I think they call them foster kids nowadays. <laughs> if you if you have something like that, maybe I I, I don't know which. You know, I, I guess back then, I know, and I, I keep referencing Untold Legend of the Batman, but that's kind of my go-to extended Batman origin. You, you know, got to uh, reference something. That's not a bad one. Right. But, uh, you know, I know in that one, they said that uh, the judge, when, when Bruce goes to, quote unquote, adopt Dick, it's like, well, uh, since you're a bachelor, Mr. Wayne, I can't let you adopt him, but uh, I can make him your, he can become your ward. You know, so I live in your house. <laughs> you can still live in your house and you can still, you know. You can treat him or mistreat him how you like, but <laughs> you can do whatever you do that would drive Doctor Frederick Wortham crazy. But you, <laughs> we just can't make this a legal adoption. We can still have Golden Age pages that innocently show you two in the same bedroom, but later people will <laughs> will you know have a field day with. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um. Uh, Bruce goes to uh, Hudson Academy, which uh, was maybe a nod to Dick going to Hudson University on Earth One. Uh, makes sense to me. I, that's the only reason I can figure he went to Hudson Academy. Uh, just maybe a, trying to show that there's some more parallels between the two Earths. Um, the, the college years, obviously, this is where this is where uh, Thomas really fleshes things out uh, and kind of makes the story his own. This angle with Julie. Uh, Julie Madison appeared in uh, Detective Number Thirty One, I believe, was her first appearance. Uh, Batman uh, goes to New York, or he's in New York, maybe. Um, I can't remember if they really say it's like you know they they hadn't decided on Gotham City at that point. Uh, but uh, you know he 
finds Julie sleepwalking and it's like it's it's in a, in a single panel it says Batman recognizes his fiance you know Julie Madison is like but wait a minute we're five issues in or whatever and he's got a fiance what 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 <laughs> you know, it's like, did, what what did I miss you know there was no explanation of how they met before so Thomas uses that to you know kind of create his own little hook uh, for his version of the origin and uh, it's kind of interesting because you know uh, one. We have gotten so used again since Miller and Batman year one had Bruce Wayne, you know, abroad for years. And in that one, you don't really know. They play pay lip service to the fact that he trained with different masters and things. But over the years, you would occasionally meet these masters. And basically, he had ninja training. Uh, you know, it's like it's pretty much what you saw in Batman Begins, you know. And uh, uh, but before that he just went to college. Yeah. It's like Bruce Wayne went to college and learned criminology, learned chemistry. He, he, he trained his body and, uh, and here Thomas really emphasizes his acting, Mm -hmm. uh, which is interesting because, you know, that's something that Alfred has provided over the years and in different versions. Um, but, uh, it's, it's really, it's easy to forget that the whole, you know, uh, you know, I, trained like Kane and Kung Fu bit came from, you know, from the last 30 years. It, it didn't exist before that. So they're big on Shakespearean plays at, at this college. <laughs> yeah. They do Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. <laughs> hey, if you're going to do it, man, you yeah, know, exactly. go for it. Uh, I think it's interesting when they go out on a date, they talk about Bruce really likes the, the crime dramas from Warner brothers. Uh, which, which, you know, I don't know if that was, you know, Thomas trying to, you know, get a raise or. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, because Warner Brothers would have bought DC by this time. It probably like oh, 10 yeah. years earlier. Yeah, yeah, they actually, yeah, because I think they were bought, was it Kenny Services bought DC, then bought Warner's and then kind of merged them. And yeah. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, they were definitely part of DC, not as integrated as they are now, of course, uh, but definitely still part of uh, the whole Warner's uh, empire. But uh, it's interesting because, like we said, in, in three years, yeah. Batman's going to be in a big-budget Warner Brothers motion picture yeah. um, and uh, that, that evokes these stories. And in some ways, they're crime noir films of the, of the 30s and 40s with, of course, a guy in rubber and a cape. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, the, I really like the angle with the, the old man, uh, the skies. Um, I thought that was neat, but it's, it's really interesting. The whole motivation for him becoming Batman in this version is very different. Um, you've got, he doesn't want to, 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 uh, potentially damage his relationship with Julie. So he's going to go out as a, as a secret vigilante for a while and see if he's cut out to become a police detective, more or less. (laughs) Which seems... Okay, I guess that's one way of doing it. <laughs> that's the hard way. You know, am, I like... fit, am I fit to be a cop? All right, <laughs> let me write down all the ways that I can test this. <laughs> I'm going to become an unarmed vigilante in a weird costume, <laughs> uh, you know, rather than a plainclothes policeman with a gun. Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah I mean, th- and this is one where I'll certainly say Frank Miller did it better. Right, um, right. With, with the dramatic moment of Bruce Wayne bleeding bleeding out on like his, in his father's study, basically trying to decide whether he wants to live or not. And at that moment, yeah. the bat crashes through the window. I was like, okay, in terms of dramatic reveals and inspiration, 
okay, kudos, Frank. That was the better way to go. <laughs> right. You know, and then we've in, and in a similar vein, you get uh, like the Mask of the Phantasm, yeah. uh, the animated movie. You get him going out in a ski mask and and right. and trying it out. You know, which uh, which is similar, but doesn't involve prostitutes and stuff. For <laughs> you know, a, kid, a movie that was partially aimed at kids. That's the uh, so. only problem I have with Batman Mask of the Phantasm. Not enough prostitutes. <laughs> well, you know, there is one animated episode where they show, uh, who is it? Is it Batgirl stops and talks to some girls standing on a street corner, and one of them looks like Black Canary. Yeah. <laughs> Calling back to your other show. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a Black Canary podcast. That's right. Never miss it. Uh so, yeah, I just think that's, you know, I had read, of course, I've read this and read this, but when reading this for this show, that really hit me as like, this wasn't, he didn't become Batman because, you know, usually it's like, if they really explain it, it's like, I can't become, uh, you know, I can't become a cop. They're tied up with red tape. They'll usually have something like, you know, like Bruce learns that the law doesn't always serve justice, you know, or you know, they, the criminals get away, they, you know, they don't, they don't, they're not prosecuted. They're not, you know, and, and he can't become a cop. He's got to take the law into his own hands. But here it's like, I don't want to lose my girlfriend. So um, let me see. What if I had a really crazy costume and just went out and beat up some guys and see if I could do it, you know? So, you know but, uh, but the, 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 the splash, the, it's not really a splash, but the, the large panel you get of his reveal as Batman when he's yeah. coming out the window, that thing's gorgeous. Uh, yeah, that's just, good. That's that's Batman, and then like you said, you've got the giant. The, he knocks the guy out onto the giant spoon. Well, that's a big Bill Finger thing right there. Yep. There's there's a there's a big Bill Finger prop. So, in uh, in Batman, he fails. So all you people who hate infallible God Batman, he <laughs> screws up right on the first night. The moment on the bottom of page twelve when he actually knocks out Slugsy. Um, that punch with the with the way the cape flies out and the the shape of his arm that looks very Bob Kane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. It looks like kind of like or one t- of the guys who basically ghost drew Batman during the Bob <laughs> Kane era. Well, it looks like Detective Twenty Seven, which I'm you know Bob Kane drew. Although we found out that he pretty much drew it. He swiped every single pose in the early Batman comics from Hal Foster or somebody you know or or. or uh, uh, some some comic strip artist, but uh, but yeah, that you're right. That definitely he's got the stiff the stiff bat wing look that he had on the cover of Detective Twenty Seven right there when he's punching him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Any other notes on this first section? We're only halfway through with this story, folks. <laughs> That's right. Uh, just real quick, that apparently you know, according to the notes at the end, Thomas pulled. Uh, Batman's first night out from Batman's first case from Detective Number Two Sixty Five, which again is from a Silver Age comic from March nineteen fifty nine, but the cover actually depicts uh, Robin's like reading a book, and there's a flashback scene where Batman's getting the net dropped on him. Yeah, uh, which is which is kind of interesting that he went there, but it's probably he said it's like well it was as good as any first night out story I guess. So so there you go. But uh, uh, it's kind of interesting, you know. It hit me as, and I'm not complaining. You want to see Marshall Rogers draw Batman as he draws him, but he doesn't go for the the earliest Batman costume with his ears going out more to the side and the, the purple gloves, purple gloves, and the you know round belt buckle and and things like that. This is a much. This is basically his Batman that he drew, minus the oval on his chest, which he never liked anyway. So, 
it's sort of the way that Thomas and Boring and Ordway on the Superman story in Secret Origins 1, it was sort of the Golden Age Superman, and it was also sort of the Earth 2 Superman from later eras mm-hmm. kind of merged together. That's sort of what I got from this. It's it's a little bit the Golden Age, but it's also just an Earth 2 version that's that kind of blended together, at least visually terms, in, in artistic right. style. Right, right. All right. So let me, let me do my part. Yep, if you're ready. Okay. A somewhat deflated Batman returns to Bruce Wayne's penthouse apartment. He contemplates his mistakes and the possibility that a desk job may be more suited to him. He phones Julie, but she is late for a rehearsal, and the two agree to talk the next night. Bruce's impending call will determine their future together, as he intends to come to New York and ask for her hand in marriage. Before that, though. He looks up an old friend of his Uncle Philip, Commissioner Gordon. Bruce hopes Gordon might recommend him to the NYPD. Before Bruce can get around to the subject, Gordon receives a call about a homicide, and he invites Bruce to come along to the crime scene, because that's what you do. At the home of the victim, chemical magnate David Lambert, Gordon questions Lambert's son, John. The adult young man tells of how his father's dying word was, Rosebud. No, (laughs) I'm sorry, uh, a contract. Uh, Gordon questions whether or not Lambert had any enemies or people especially interested in his chemical business. John Lambert rattles off a list of former business partners, Stephen Crane, Paul Rogers, not the guy from Bad Company, and Alfred Stryker. At that very moment, Crane has called the estate. Speaking to Gordon, Crane reveals that Lambert had contacted him about an anonymous death threat he had received. And now Crane has one hanging over his head as well. Gordon heads for Crane's house, and Bruce bids his farewells, not wishing to be in the way. The police arrive too late as Crane is shot and murdered in his home, the gunman making off with the paper. As he joins his accomplice on the roof, the two are startled by the Batman. This time, the masked manhunter makes quick work of the criminals and picks up the mysterious piece of paper. Spotted by the police, Batman makes a hasty exit as Gordon and his men head to the homes of the remaining business partners. In a high-powered sedan, Batman reads the confiscated paper and smiles. Paul Rogers arrives at the home of his former partner, Alfred Stryker, to warn him of the danger they both are in. Rogers is knocked unconscious by Stryker's butler, Jennings, and placed in a glass gas chamber in Stryker's laboratory. As Jennings begins to release the gas, the Batman comes through the skylight and smashes the chamber with a nearby wrench. He takes out the arm Jennings as Stryker himself enters the lab. As Rogers explains the situation, Stryker reveals his true motives and pulls a knife on his former partner. Before he can commit another murder, the Batman grabs him. The Dark Knight detective then informs Rogers of Stryker's plan. The four men had been partners in the Apex Chemical Corporation. Stryker had entered into a secret contract with the other three men to buy them out of the company over the course of several years. Without sufficient funds to pay this year, Stryker decided to murder his partners and steal the secret contracts thereby making him the sole owner of the company. Stryker breaks free of Batman's grip and running away stumbles into a vat of acid below them. A grim Batman declares, a fitting end for his kind. Later that night, Bruce Wayne returns to Gordon's home where the commissioner tells him of the Batman's exploits and how he quickly solved the case. Bruce agrees someone like that could cut through a lot of red tape, but it all sounds like a fairy tale to him. After Bruce leaves, Gordon wonders why the apparently unaffected Bruce didn't ask for his help in putting his criminology studies to good use. Back at home, Bruce calls Julie to tell her of his impending visit to her in New York. 
He also informs her that he is not going to pursue police work, even a desk job. The question he has for her will have to wait until they meet face to face. As he hangs up the phone, Bruce Wayne contemplates how his dream to fight crime is over. That has been taken up by the Batman. Dun dun dun. <laughs> dun 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 dun. <laughs> All right. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, the biggest note I had for this back end section was I think Roy Thomas tried to give Gordon an out or a no prize for why Gordon would take Bruce Wayne to these crime scenes. Right. <laughs> um, by basically explaining, and, and it makes a certain amount of sense is that. Bruce Wayne studied criminology, and it seems like Gordon is trying to say, hey, why don't you come here? Maybe you know, give him a taste for police work. Maybe right. entice him to actually join the, the police force. Right. And, and what, uh, it appears that Bruce Wayne very flakily just sort of brushes it off and says, like, yeah, not for me. Right. That's, that's something that in the actual Detective 27, which you know, by this point you're pretty much into a straight adaptation of yeah. the case of the Chemical Syndicate, the first Batman story uh, from Detective 27. But Bruce is a lot more foppish, yeah. you know, in, in, in that story because he's already figured out his shtick of playing the idle, rich millionaire, you know. But uh, it's kind of interesting that, that, uh, that Thomas went in that direction with Bruce studying criminology and it being known because he does become the police commissioner of Gotham City on Earth 2. Uh, in later years, when he retires as Batman, he becomes... He replaces Gordon as police commissioner. So uh, that's kind of, I don't know if, I, I, knowing Thomas, he probably was working that in too because he's got to make everything fit, you of course, know? Of course. Uh, and, uh, and, and, it, and it does, it does make sense that, you know, I mean, Bruce Wayne, um, you know, could, uh, and as the years went by, he probably played the, you know, the, uh, the, the playboy less and less. And it did seem like in the comics, Bruce Wayne was more, of the civic-minded, more like the Adam West Bruce Wayne, you know, uh, the very civic-minded uh, charity uh, uh, drive Bruce Wayne. Uh, so it would make sense that he could run for office, and with his his degree in criminology, or at least his studies, he could, you know, in his influence, <laughs> he could he could win the election for police commissioner in, in Gotham City. So yeah. uh, it's kind of a nice little wraparound to uh, how Batman ended up in the. Uh, the all-star comics and adventure comics JSA runs in the, in the late seventies. Yeah. As you were saying, this is pretty much the case of the chemical syndicate, just retold and redrawn. I'm trying to remember though, the character of striker Mm -hmm. in that first appearance, did he look like this? Did he have the all white suit? Uh, Striker in in the, in at least in this reprint, he doesn't have the goatee and the mustache. He's a balding man. Bald on top with hair on the side in a blue suit here. Okay. Of course, they may have recolored it, but because Batman's gloves are blue instead of purple, but uh, but he doesn't he doesn't quite look the same. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I noticed, I'll go ahead and bring up since I got it open. There's several differences here in the action because uh, when the glass dome comes down on uh, in in this story, uh, Batman jumps in from the skylight, picks up a wrench, and throws it at the the glass and shatters it. In the original Detective 27, he grabs the wrench, runs underneath the tank, the, 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 the glass case as it comes down, and he's in there with Rogers. Mm-hmm. And he, he stuffs a handkerchief in the nozzle and then breaks the glass from the inside, which is kind of interesting that, that Thomas truncated this, or maybe Rogers did. Maybe Rogers thought 
it'd be a lot more dramatic if he picked it up and threw it, which of course it is, right. you know, but it's a little less, you know, it's, it's kind of neat to, to think that Batman in his very first story escapes a death trap yeah. because he gets in there, you know, and, and, uh, that's of course part of Batman's shtick. Uh, and it's not just from, you know, the 60s TV show, which, of course, <laughs> had to have at least one every episode. Uh, but uh, Well, this version was certainly the smarter way to go because just throwing the wrench from the outside, you're not trapping yourself right. with the possibility that your plan doesn't work. Right. <laughs> good, good point, yeah. Uh, another thing that I think is really interesting, and I didn't really ever notice it until reading, kind of reading both of these kind of side by side to compare them, was that in the original – in this version, and we'll go this version first, uh, Batman uh, Stryker escapes Batman's grip, runs, and stumbles into the vat of acid. In the original, Batman's got him by the by the collar of his shirt and his jacket. He gets away from Batman, pulls a gun out of his coat. Batman punches him, and he falls into the vat of acid. Yeah. Uh, so that makes Batman a lot more culpable in the in his death. Uh, which I'm sure Thomas was trying to get around a little bit. But uh, Batman didn't give a crap about killing people back then. <laughs> if you died, you died. I mean, that was just the way it was. <laughs> no, he was he was carrying guns for a couple times, and he had machine guns on his helicopters and stuff. Right. Shooting down monster men and, and you know, and, and coming in splash pages with a smoking forty five in his hand, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, he, you know, he was definitely not the uh, – all lives are precious, Robin, Batman, you know, uh, of, of later years. So, right. uh, but I thought that they kind of sanitized it a bit here, which is kind of interesting because they really didn't have to, because we're not going to see this Batman again. Nope. Uh, and even in um, a few years prior to this, in uh, the autobiography of Bruce Wayne, he, the splash page has Batman, you know, this Bruce Wayne thinking back to his early years as Batman. And it shows him with a gun you know, firing a gun, and I'm like, that's the first time I ever saw Batman with a gun. Yeah. Uh, I hadn't seen these reprints yet, I, you know, these old stories yet, and I was like, wow, Batman on Earth 2 had a gun! You know, so, so it's, I mean, he didn't in this story, so it makes sense that he's not carrying one, but it, it does seem kind of odd that he went out of his way to kind of to kind of sanitize Batman's actions a bit, because when he really didn't have to, honestly. Yeah. I looked up on the All-Star Companion, Volume 4, Mm-hmm. I think one of the notes was that this story, the Batman origin, at the time that that volume came out, this story was the only story from all of Secret Origins that had been reprinted or collected in a trade. Yes. And this has been reprinted tw- or recollected twice, right? In one of Thanks. the versions of the greatest Batman stories of ever told. Yeah. And also in the more recent it's either Tales of the Batman or Legends of the Dark Knight, um, Marshall Rogers hardcover collection. Right. They collected all the Marshall Rogers Batman stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It's, you know, I mean, I think, I think the fact that, that I, I definitely think Marshall Rogers drawing this, I mean, this was his first return to Batman since probably 78, 79. Um, and uh, he, you know, he hadn't done, he had done, I think, a Batman portfolio in the early 80s but he hadn't done any Batman comic work since then. And so I think that's definitely why this gets reprinted uh, as much as it does. Plus it's just a good go-to Batman origin, you know? Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it, I, I really enjoy it. I mean, not just so much for the, I mean, I, I love it for the art alone, but I mean, I think Thomas, I really, I do admire the fact that he tried to bring something different to it. 
you know, it wasn't as, as quite as uh, moving and, and uh, convincing that uh, that he would have the convictions he has and, and, and be worried about a girlfriend <laughs> so much. But uh, it might take a bit away from that. But, you know, Batman, you got to put yourself back in, uh, you know, in the pre, again, this was after Dark Knight, but it had started to come out. But before it, it had, its influence was felt, uh, the, the pre-Uber-obsessed Batman. Uh you know, I mean, obviously there's a certain amount of obsession and that had been touched on by other people. Miller wasn't the first person to, to, to touch on that, but he was the first person that really went nuts with it, you know, right. uh, went to town with it. So, uh, you know, I think it's, it's, uh, that might seem a little weird that Batman's, you know, worried about, you know, losing his girlfriend. That's why he became Batman, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, rather than become Bruce Wayne cop, but, uh, right. It, it is a, it's a nice it's a nice little wrinkle and it's it's the only time I think I've, anybody's ever done anything like that with him. Yeah, and I'm a little surprised that Julie Madison just faded into obscurity for so long. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I understand. I mean, I, I do believe that Bruce Wayne should be a bachelor and like he he can never let somebody else into that. But I'm okay with him having girlfriends and I'm okay with him feeling that struggle that pull of do I want to let a woman into my life? And that's the natural sort of romantic conflict. I'm fine with that. I'm just surprised that in other media, Julie Madison hasn't ever sort of made that leap. Like I actually, I had to, I had to look it up. I didn't think she was in any of the movies. Turns out Elle McPherson, McPherson yeah, I was gonna Rock, say. which was, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, that's what I was going to say. Elle McPherson was Julie Madison in Batman and Robin. <laughs> and, and if you can remember that, I don't know whether you deserve a gold sticker or a slap in the face. Um, I deserve a slap in the face probably. Yeah. But, oh. and, and that's not because it's such geek knowledge, but it's like, does anybody did she have a line of dialogue in that movie? I don't remember, but <laughs> well, well, at least Alfred didn't bring her into the Batcave, you know. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but like in in the Nolan movies, they made up this Rachel Dawes character. Like in Mask of the Phantasm, we saw another woman. It's like she never transitioned into these other sort of media films. And I don't think it, I think it was really just like Grant Morrison because he wanted to tie in every Batman story and make it all continuity. I think that's the only reason he brought her back during his run a couple of years ago. Right. But otherwise, yeah. it's like, yeah, it, like in the history, Bruce Wayne was engaged to her. Like she was, right. a, she was a recurring character, like maybe only five or six issues. But what, what's up with that? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. I think Julie Madison reappears in Secret Origins in the Mud Pack issue. Oh, you're right. Because she is an actress in the remake yeah. of the movie that Basil Carlo yeah, yeah, yeah. is trying to disrupt as Clayface. Yeah, um, right. That's how Batman and Robin get involved in it. Um, and I think they keep the Julie Madison character in there. Of course, by now we're on the post-crisis Batman. So apparently the post-crisis Batman at least dated Julie Madison. I don't remember if they were engaged, but um, at, you know, in, at least in some version he did. Um, so yeah, I think Keith Giffen drew that chapter, yeah. uh, because the artwork's really strange. That was in Keith, one of Keith Giffen's strange, strange periods, which I'm not a huge fan of, but, uh, um, all right. So, yeah. when, so when I get up to podcast episode 44, <laughs> well, well, I'll talk about Julie Madison again. Right. Right. So yeah, it's kind of interesting. I was going to bring up, it's like her claim to fame is kind of like the encounter with the monk, which, you know, Thomas, he has to make that work. He sends Batman to New York right. because it specifically says Batman's in New York in Detective 31 when 
Julie gets involved with the the monk and 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 Dala or whatever her name is. Uh, his you know the the monk who's a semi werewolf vampire because Gardner Fox and Bob Kane couldn't decide what he was, <laughs> or maybe it's a little bit of both. I don't know. Uh, they were ahead of the Underworld films. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> something like that. But, uh, you know, I've, I've always been a sucker for the monk. And of course, a lot of people, they've revisited that, revisited that several times. And, uh, you know, the eighties, Jerry Conway and Gene Colan and, mm-hmm. and Don Newton redid it. And then of course, uh, Matt Wagner did the, 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 the that again as oh, yeah, well. The, yeah. The mad monk. And then the monster men with the mm-hmm. with Hugo strange. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and it, it, again, like going back to that original premise of Batman, fitting into all of these genre types. I mean, right from the get-go, they could show you that Batman could work in a horror setting. Right. I mean, they dropped him in the middle of a Universal movie. I mean, you know, this <laughs> this is 1939. The Universal monster movies were a, a going concern, you know? I mean, uh, and they dropped him right in the middle of one. And, I mean, and, in a way, that's sort of what, that's sort of what the, the Marvel horror books ended up doing. When you had, mm-hmm. when you had a monster, some sort of, like supernatural creature that was a beast, but was also fighting the other monsters. It was like Blade. Batman was sort of like the first white Blade. He was the yeah. he was he looked like the vampire. He acted like the vampire, and he fought the bad vampire. Right. I mean that, and you know that's something that I don't think can be that can ever. You know that's I think that's one reason why the Batman and and Joker work so well. And I mean I, I'm not saying anything people don't know, but you've got that that iconoclastic image of the the demonic looking good guy. Mm-hmm. And and then then of course the Joker is the clown. I know we're all people are creeped out by clowns nowadays, but the clown is supposed to be the happy, joyful character, and he's a murderer, you know. So I mean, I mean, I think that's that that's another reason why they they just work so well, you know. It's it's you just can't uh, you can go all day long and psychoanalyze them, but it's just uh, the visuals is just a, a good chunk of it. I would love to have seen. How great would it have been if a miniseries spun out of this with Thomas and Rogers and Austin recreating the, the Golden Age Batman stories like that first year before Robin? I was, I mean, yeah, I was going to say basically doing their own version of year one. I, uh, I would have <laughs> I, I bought a lot of those comics. Yeah, the mind boggles. I mean, can you imagine Marshall Rogers drawing Batman's first encounter with the monk and, right. and Hugo Strange and Dr. Death and... And and those guys that that would have been that would have been awesome. I like you said, I bought that all day. I probably would have if I had to. I would have dropped Batman and Detective to buy that. <laughs> I don't know though because Alan Davis and Mike W. Barr were doing Detective right or, uh, shortly after this, so that, that was, was that was too. yeah, that was a great run on Batman too. So um, did did Alan Davis stop on the first issue of Year Two? Yeah, he drew the first issue of Batman Year Two and. And dropped out, yeah. And then, and then Tom, Tom Todd McFarlane, yeah, picked it up. Yeah. That was a big switch. <laughs> yeah, the, I can. Yeah, I would. I would probably notice that. Yeah, that was. Uh, if it wasn't for the solid red background covers, that's the only thing that makes those covers even remotely look like one another. It's, uh, they had that motif going on, but uh, yeah, the, 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 you know, the Batman books were. Uh, you know, you know, as this came out. This this issue is kind of interesting because it's um, this is probably kind of the one of the very last last gasps of Earth Two um, because at the the month this thing came out you had um, you had several uh, other Earth Two things like the month before All Star Squadron number sixty was the issue where 
the the last traces of Earth Two were erased from the comic. Yeah. Uh, you you literally had a, a page that was a photo that had all the All Stars with Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Robin, uh, Aquaman of Earth Two standing there in the front of the group. And then a couple pages later, FDR looked at the picture again. They were gone, replaced by the Freedom Fighters. Yeah. Uh, they, I mean, so they were out of existence. Yeah, well, Secret uh, Origins only had three stories that were sort of officially touching on Golden Age heroes as if they were a separate continuity. Roy Thomas did it with Superman, Batman, and Captain Marvel. Mm-hmm. Those were the only ones that were basically acknowledged as not being in the new Earth created by Crisis. Right. Because though all three of those guys got their own rebooted miniseries. Yeah. Uh, Man of Steel, Batman Year One, and Shazam, the, the New Beginning, or A New right. Beginning. Yeah, which was written by Thomas. Well, yeah. yeah, it was written by Thomas. So yeah. it was really only those three stories that were acknowledged as being in a separate continuity, a separate Earth. After that, right. all of these Golden Age stories that Thomas is telling are acknowledged and assumed to be in the same post-crisis reality. Right. You know, and it, it, that's right. And and the very month that this came out, uh, Infinity Infinity Incorporated number thirty came out. That's the aftermath of the last days of the JSA when the the, the kids mourn the loss of their parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, Earth One continuity was was turning the lights off too because you had the the uh, Alan Moore's whatever happened to the man of tomorrow and Superman in action. And then the, for Batman, the, uh, the Doug Minch run was ending in Batman and detective. I think you uh, had only had one more issue of Batman next month was number 400. That was the, the last earth one Batman story. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and then that, like I said, that same month, dark Knight number four came out and Watchmen number one. So, <laughs> What a transition period for DC Comics right, right now. <laughs> that's that's actually pretty incredible that all that happened at the same time. It's easy to forget that it was that it that all that was going on, and, and I was there, but I don't think I quite realized what quite. Even though I read Crisis, I didn't quite realize what was going on at the time. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's kind of interesting. Um, I I just you know this I, I'm glad I got to 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 contribute to to this episode because I am. I'm a huge fan of Marshall Rogers. I think I first encountered him, uh, I think it was the DC Special Series number 15, which was the Batman Spectacular. It came out in the summer of 1978. I was three years old, but I remember getting that comic. Wow. I, I don't know how I remember that, but I remember saying, I want that comic and getting it. I think I had a few comics before, mm-hmm. but that is one of the first that I actually remember getting, and it's a Marshall Rogers cover, and it's got that... Uh, the 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 kind of uh, pro story with with art uh, Denny O'Neill pro story with Marshall Rogers art around the edges of it and you know it's 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 like a it's kind of like a graphic I think they even called it a graphic novel which was <laughs> interesting that 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 would have to take on a different meaning later um, yeah. it, and sometime later uh, I think then I this was probably the next Batman comic I had by him and then I tracked down the uh, the his detective run. Uh, and all this back issues, and I Which actually wasn't that long. He didn't do a whole lot of Batman comics for for as great no. as he was. No, it's it's really weird that they didn't like chain him to his desk and say draw Batman. Yeah, you know, it's like, uh, but but I think I, my understanding is is that that run it it wasn't entirely well received at the time, but it was like almost as soon as they were off of it, 
then people were like, man, I wish those guys would come back. You know, it's like, you know, I don't know, within just a year or two, you know, they were they were touting as it one of the best Batman runs ever. And, and, and the, the odd thing is, is I think Englehart wrote it and wrote that series. And uh, it started out Simonson drew like the first two issues of that run, Walt Simonson. And he like left the country. He like went to France or something. And he basically turned all his work in and said, here, you know, I'm taking a break for a while from comics. Uh, I think he'd had a bad experience at Marvel um, and uh, had, had come to DC and kind of on his way out said, I'll write some stuff. And, and, uh, and then, you know, they gave it to, to Rogers and Austin who had a lot, apparently a lot of people at DC didn't like their stuff. They, it was too, uh, you know, it was, too, it was too far removed from the DC house style. Um, they, they got that issue of detective where uh, that Bob Rosakis wrote, where they fight the calculator, like the, it was a yeah, culmination of a it, bunch of backups. Yeah, it, would, it had been like five back because I I blogged about those on Flowers and Fishnets. It would, yeah, right. there was like five backup features with members of the Justice League fighting the calculator, and mm-hmm. it culminated with that one issue. The yeah, where Batman Batman finally stops him. Right. Well, apparently Julius Schwartz or somebody liked their stuff enough to say, "Hey, why don't you guys, you know, draw a detective?" And there they were. But uh, you know, and then I think Rogers did that the introduction of Clayface three with Lynn Wein, but then after that he just kind of hopped around to a few to the Batman spectacular and like an issue of Batman family for a story. And, and then he was gone, you know, it's, it's, it was, uh, it's kind of a shame that he didn't, uh, that he didn't, it's definitely a shame that he didn't do more, but, uh, it was, it's kind of funny because I actually, I have no idea why, how Marshall Rogers ended up here, but I actually met the man at a, very tiny convention and uh, comic convention in nearby Lexington, Kentucky, when I was in high school. And, uh, you know, this was probably 92, something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was probably like 17 or something. And I, I, I went and uh, took in the stack of comics that I had. And they were all, the, you know, the Batman, except this one, oddly enough. I think this is the only one I didn't get him to sign. Um, I, I guess I didn't think of it, you know. And, and, uh, he was kind of impressed that I had, you know, tracked them all down and, uh, you know, and, and, uh, he was very nice and, you know, I, I don't, I, you know, I don't think I was, I was brave enough to show him any of my stuff, you know, my art or anything. Cause yeah. I, you know, I, I, I hope I didn't, I, I don't remember doing it, but I, I remember him being really nice. And, and I talked to him for quite a bit because like I said, I don't know how in the world he ended up at this. It was one of those little tiny hotel room, you know, basically right. hotel ballroom conventions that, you know, has about 10 tables and, yep. you know, after you walk around for about 15 minutes, you're done, you know. Yep. Uh, but uh, it, it was, at least I got to say, you know, I got to meet him. Uh, I wish I was smart enough to get a sketch off of him, but I probably couldn't have afforded it back then. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that, that even, you know, that even made it better. And, and uh, my appreciation of him even more greater, but it's kind of interesting because Thomas even, he kind of hints that, you know, if the if the team of Englehart, Rogers, and Austin, you know, should reunite, I'd be right there waiting to to get a hold of that comic, basically. And the, yeah. and, and and Denny O'Neill kind of hinted at it in his from the Den co- uh, column in Batman as he was early because you know he's getting ready to take over the Batman comics like right now as this book's coming out, and it seemed like that was on the back burner for a very long time, yeah. and it and it didn't happen until like the mid two thousands. I think the first Marshall Rogers Batman comic that I read 
if it wasn't this one, which I, again, I didn't pick this one up at the time, but I would have read it in the collection of the greatest Batman stories ever told. But I think the first Marshall Rogers Batman story that I read was that Clayface issue that I would have found in like a back issue bin. Because as, as I've said, my first comics were G.I. Joe comics in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when Batman came out, that movie was so huge and influential on me and my older brother. And my older brother was big, was old enough that he would go out and buy. He wasn't a big comic reader, but he loved the movie. So he, he bought a bunch of, at the time, what were the graphic novels and the trade paperbacks. And there were a crap load of them that were being pushed out in 89 and 90 because of that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you remember, like every every store after that movie had a Warner Brothers store had all the all the, like right. Batman merchandise and stuff like that. You, if you went to go, like you took your car into the shop, the mechanic had a uh, Warner Brothers like section where you could just buy Warner Brothers merchandise and Batman stuff. Yeah. Um, so, he, yeah, my brother got Batman Year One, Batman: The Dark Knight Returns, Arkham Asylum, uh, The Killing Joke. And like a few others. So those were the first Batman stories that I read or tried to read before like a single floppy issue. I was I was being exposed to those graphic novels and they certainly informed my opinion of the characters for a while. Like, as I said before, I I thought Superman was a a tool (laughs) for the longest time because I my only reading exposure to him was him being the tool in The Dark Knight Returns. And it, right. took, it took a while to break me of that. Um, I don't think a lot of people have gotten broken of that. I think no. that I really think for everything The Dark Knight did for Batman in terms of his popularity, it did the exact opposite to, for Superman. Right. I don't think he's quite recovered ever since, ever since to be honest. <laughs> but, but my first paperback copy of a, a floppy issue of a Batman comic. I remember getting at a grocery store was Detective Comics issue 617, which I swore I would have paid money thinking that that came out the same summer as the movie, thinking that it came out in 89. And mm. I've gone back and checked, and it was the summer of 90. So it was a, ye- a year later. Um, right. It, it was an Alan Grant, Norm Bray Fogel comic. It was a standalone issue with the Joker as the Batman. And there's all sorts of weird imagery with tarot cards. Oh, yeah. Remember that? Yeah. yeah. And there's, it, towards the end, there's this beautiful double page splash of Batman sweeping down and basically kicking the roof off of Joker's convertible mm-hmm. um, with this fierce, like, ghostly image of a bat's face. It looks like Batman is swooping out of the bat's mouth. Mm-hmm. And just kicking the Joker and breaking the roof off his off his car, it's amazing. Like, and I read that I, I was like, I'm going to read more comics with Batman. <laughs> um, That's a good run to get in the middle of. That was another great run of Batman was the Grant Brayfogle stuff. Yeah, yeah, and right. I, I've still got that issue. It is not in good shape. But I've still got it, and that's where it started. Like then, my go-to's that I would get from that store all the time were Batman and Detective. Um, and then, a few months later, then when I actually discovered there was a comic store that I could ride my bike to, I I started getting much more into Marvel books and the X-Men and the, their world. Um, so, it, it took a long time for me to get hardcore into DC. I kept trying, but. The 90s were not a good time to break into DC, I don't think. Yeah, um, no. Especially about that Black Canary series you've been covering. <laughs> oh, my gosh. If I didn't have a blog, I would oh, 
<laughs> but I think it's I, no. I, I should say I, I, despite all that, I, I I enjoy your coverage of it way more than I know that I enjoy the issues. So that now what does that mean? I don't know. But I I, I love I, and it's not that you like go into it trying to rip it apart. It's just you know it kind of is what it is. But uh, yeah, that that was a great that was a great period uh, of for Batman because you yeah. it's because some of the. I think O'Neill had a little trouble figuring out what to do with the Batman title because he, you know, he tried out Max Allen Collins and that was a train wreck because his introduction to Jason Todd did nothing to make anybody like that character. And it just, if you were a fan of Dick Grayson, it just made you madder in hell what he did with, Oh, you got shot. So you can't be Robin anymore, but here, let me pick up this street punk and have him become Robin, which is just like, Oh my God, go write Dick Tracy and leave us alone. You know, uh, (laughs) Sorry, I ain't got no love for his take on Batman. No. Uh, but over in Detective, you had Barr and Davis. He did a great, like, pseudo-Golden Age Batman TV show version in a modern setting, which is just, that's just, I mean, it's like Dick Sprang and Bill Finger reborn as Barr and Davis, basically. And um, then after they left, and eventually Barr left after Davis had left, uh, you got Wagner and Grant and Brayfogle, which later learned Wagner hardly wrote any of it. He just, they just were writing partners, and he kept his name on it for the longest time, apparently, until he finally said, "Hey, you know, I'm writing all this." So, no, forget it. Yeah. But uh, I mean, that was a that was a fantastic, uh, fantastic run on Detective, and then, then when they went into Shadow of the Bat and and all that. But uh, yeah, because uh, when you said that at six seventeen, I, I don't have all issues numbers remember, but I, I know that the 50th anniversary of Batman and it coincided with detective 600 and Sam Hamm, the screenwriter of of Batman 89 wrote that, which that story wasn't the greatest. I mean, I think they could have done a a story that was more iconically Batman than that one. It wasn't a bad story, but it, you know, it it was kind of odd that it kind of, the, the, the villains in that kind of, were a little bit of a precursor to Bane, which was just a few years later, which was kind of odd. Yeah. But, but uh, yeah, I always remember that that the in between issue the where the demonic Batman's puking on Bruce Wayne and <laughs> with the gun in his hand. It's like, okay, that's that's just an odd image. <laughs> and then the thing about that run right after six seventeen, like immediately after, is when they started moving Tim Drake to being the new Robin. Mm-hmm. He, he had been introduced already, but it was like within the next couple issues that you saw him in costume. Right. So, anyway, um, start wrapping this up. Um, okay. We've mentioned a ton of great Batman stuff, but um, officially, do you have any specific recommendations? Like, if if you have to push one or two Batman books on a new reader, what are you pushing on them? I, you know, honestly, I would push. I would push the. I don't know what version's out right now, but I'm a big fan of, of the, the greatest Batman stories ever told. I think, I think that's a, uh, you know, if, if, especially because there are so many different Batman versions out there in the media, especially a few years back when like the brave and the bold was still on, but now, you know, they're pushing Batman 66 again. Uh, I would, I would, I would say go to that. And because you're going to get, you're going to touch. You're going to find out how, just like we said, Batman is so translatable across different genres and and, and across the decades. 
Um, you know, even though I've read my, I've got a hardcover when it first came out that's just been read to death. And now I've got a trade paperback of the first version that I read. And, and uh, I still pull it off the shelf. And and uh, the Batman, the the Batman decade books, you know, Batman in the 50s yep, yep. and 60s, those are great too. And, and uh, I really enjoy those. I, I you know, I've, that's that's what I'd go to because then you're going to get a sampling. You're going to get a Dick. You're going to get Dick Spring. You're going to get Neil Adams. You're going to get Marshall Rogers. Uh, you know, I don't I don't think you can go wrong with that. And I, and I think, uh, you know, with Batman, you get a greater variety uh, than if you had the greatest Superman stories ever told or the greatest Flash stories ever told. You know, uh, because of the the different artists and the different interpretations. Uh, you know, because, you know, because Kurt Swan's your Superman for 40 years. Uh, so and not that that's bad. I love Kurt Swan. But, uh, you know, so you're, you're going to get more of a mix up in a Batman volume than than a, than almost any other character. Um, so, I, yeah, I definitely go to the, the greatest story straight paperbacks. That's a good one. Yeah, I was thinking about it because I was going to my shelf and all of the good Batman graphic novels and trades that I have. And there's one that is sort of st- stuck with me over the years more than the others. And it's a little bit more obscure. It came out in 1992. And it's a book called Batman Night Cries. Mm. It was written by Archie Goodwin, and it has beautiful painted art by Scott Hampton. Mm -hmm. Um, It is a much darker story. Yeah. Um, Which is interesting, because I I think I... As I've gotten older, I have sort of grown to appreciate more of the lighter, the campiness, and the fun effervescent Batman. This is a pretty dark, adult, mature story. Um, It deals with child abuse and some grisly murders of families, and there's a dark psychology behind this serial killer and the things that he has experienced. Um, And and it has a lot to do with uh, Gordon, with Jim Gordon, when he's first becoming the commissioner, and how the stress of his job is impacting his life. He's still married at the beginning of this story, and Maybe not by the end of the story, um, and and he has a son in this one. It's it's James Junior, right? Um, which a character who did not appear in a lot of Batman comics until Scott more recently Snyder. when Scott Snyder brought him back. Yeah, um, it's just it's a beautiful book. It's it's it deals with a much more adult sort of mature psychological themes. Um, but if you're if you're a fan of the character who doesn't like Batman the Brave or the Bold or doesn't like seeing Batman with the Justice League out in space on a satellite or doesn't like Robin, if you want a grim Avenger Dark Knight character, this is a really good book to pick up. It'd be a good book probably to recommend to somebody who really likes especially the first two Nolan movies because yeah, you, yeah. you've got the relationship with Gordon yep. and uh, and it's and it's definitely more of a real world story. I've got that graphic novel. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, I had the paperback for the longest time and I was I was in a comic book store and they had the hardcover and mm-hmm. I was like I've got to upgrade just cuz I like this book so much. <laughs> right. So. All right, Chris, uh before I let you go, do you have any last thoughts about Batman? Uh I my thoughts on Batman are endless, but I'll spare you. Uh <laughs> I once told my wife, if you crack my head open, then Batman and Robin would come running out of my brain with a bunch of bats, you know. But uh, and she said, yeah, and somewhere back in the backs, me and the kids, right? <laughs> so, so, no, no, it's not that bad. But yeah, it's you know, I, I think uh, you can't, you know, you can't go into a room or in our house and not there's there's something Batman in it. And I'm drinking out of a Batman cup right now, you know. I mean, there's 
there's a case full of Batman Migos over here beside me. I mean, it's it's I'm I'm bad obsessed. So, uh, you know, it's uh, it goes deep. It, it's way deep. I'm 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 kind of sick with it, honestly. So, <laughs> I need help. <laughs> well, I, I share that affliction, and I'm realizing now that you know, with this being issue six and episode six, it's all pretty much downhill from here. <laughs> Well, Batman comes back a few times, you know, you get him in the Fighting Origin and you get him in the, the Mud Pack issue. And... That's true. And that's really the only reason why I would continue with this podcast. Otherwise, <laughs> I should just... Hey, the last issue's got a Batman or Robin story, right? So That's, that's yeah. true. That's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the one reason why I'm not just handing this off to a fan of the Legion of Superheroes and say, you do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Chris, thank you very much for joining me again. Where can my listeners find you? My wife, Cindy, and I host the Supermates podcast which you can find on iTunes or at supermatescomic.blogspot.com. Uh, I'm also the co-host on the Power Records episodes of the Fire and Water podcast. Uh, you can find that at aquamanshrine.net or powerrecord.blogspot.com uh, or on iTunes. Chris, thank you very much for being my guest again. I love talking Batman with you. Um, we'll have to do this again like in a couple hours. Are you free? Sure, yeah. I'm, I'm good. That's, that's, we can do it, yeah. <laughs> All right. Listeners, don't go very far away because we've got another story on this episode to cover. So we'll be back with that after this break. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice, blind justice, a guardian devil. <coughs> <clears throat> no, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster, but you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's it's my Daredevil. You get it. You get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare?
we're back, and we're talking about the second secret origin in this issue. This time, the spotlight is on the enigmatic Halo from Batman and the Outsiders. And joining me for this segment is Luke Giaconetti of the Earth Destruction Directive podcast. How are you, Luke? I am doing just fine, Ryan. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, and thank you very much for being part of this. Um, thank you for having the the enthusiasm to talk about Halo because this <laughs> is not a character that I know much about. Uh, you know, it's uh, I'm 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 one of the oddballs in that I'm an Outsiders fan who doesn't like the Teen Titans, so <laughs> I I figure I'm I'm pretty much required to do my my uh, you know my due diligence in defending the members of the Outsiders team, especially one of the originals. Yeah, uh, awesome, awesome. I guess we we can talk we can tell our listeners a little bit about what the team is, how it started. Batman and the Outsiders first premiered, if I get this right, as a backup or as a was it just a promotional ad in in the Brave and the Bold issue two hundred? Yeah, it it it's it is a full story in Brave and the Bold two hundred. Okay. It kind of has equal billing with the other story that's in there. Brave and the Bold two hundred was the final issue of the Brave right. and the Bold. And uh, it, it tells it, – what's interesting about uh, the story in Brave and the Bold 200 is that even though it is the first appearance of the uh, Batman and the Outsiders, it is not their first adventure. Right. It, it takes place as if the team has already been together for, uh, for some time. And in fact, if you get the actually highly recommended Showcase Presents Batman and the Outsiders, they put the story, I think, after issue three. So it's I, more more – not publication chronological order, but more in sort of chronological order of where the story would take place? For that one, yes. Okay. Uh, and and it, it makes sense because I think what DC was doing with that was, hey, Brave and the Bold is going away. It's being replaced with this new title, Batman the Outsiders. Here's a taste of what you can expect from this book. It's going to be nonstop action from Mike W. Barr and Jim Aparo, so please, please buy it. And uh, hey, it, it, I tell you what, reading that, it, it, it would have worked on me if I was old enough to have been reading comics when it first was released. <laughs> so. yeah. And then the Batman and the Outsiders title ran, it premiered, the first issue came out in August of 1983, or it was cover dated August of 1983. It would have come out a few months earlier. Yep. And the series ran for 32 issues, uh, stopped in April of 1986, at which point Batman left the book. And then... It kind of split into two. Yeah, Outsiders was similar to the Titans, and I think also the Legion did this when DC started their uh, direct market only Baxter paper books uh, for their successful team books. They had two; they each would have two titles, and for a while, the Outsiders um, regular newsstand edition book ran with uh, original stories. Mm-hmm. I think it was a. I think I want to say it was a year. One of the title "Adventures of the Outsiders." Yeah. And at the same time, in the Outsiders Baxter Paper series, uh, they told stories that were set one year ahead of the stories in the regular book. And then after a year, the regular book switched over to reprints of the Baxter Paper book, and the Baxter Paper book became the only, you know, quote unquote, real Outsiders title. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. And when I, when I say I'm not that familiar with this book, um, I've, I've read the first three issues, sort of like the origin, <laughs> the, the opening adventure of Batman and the Outsiders. And then a couple years ago, just diving through like a back issue bin, I picked up maybe it was Outsiders issue four. Um, eh, decent. It still just wasn't grabbing me. That's I, the, the money cover, right? I think so, yeah. And yep. a, a year after that, 
Um, uh, same back issue bin. I picked up an issue of Adventures of the Outsiders. And it was a reprint of Outsiders issue four or something. <laughs> like. So it was, it was the same story, just different cover. Wow. Yeah, well, the, the Baxter Paper Outsiders uh, book ran for 28 issues, and it had an annual and a special in there as well. And then the team went away until the 90s when they were uh, brought back with the Outsiders Volume 2. Uh, this was right around the time of Zero Hour. Uh, I think it started a few months before because there was uh, there, there was two issue number ones. There was Outsiders number one, Alpha and Omega. And then there was an issue zero, so there was, in fact, a. Uh, it was around before that. That one ran, I want to say, 24 issues, 22, somewhere around that. And then uh, the title was brought back uh, after uh, by Judd Winnick after the Teen Titans Graduation Day uh, story. And then it was – that was the team that had um, Nightwing and Arsenal and Grace and, uh, you know, the, the, right. the yeah, ones yeah. that more modern readers might be familiar with. And that ran through – Infinite Crisis, and then uh, uh, one year later, and then eventually was restarted as Batman and the Outsiders, first by Chuck Dixon, and then Dixon left, and uh, Tony Bedard became uh, the head writer on that series, and that was kind of in the era of, like, Blackest Night, yeah. pre-Flashpoint yeah, DCU, yeah. And that's the last we've seen. We haven't gotten a... There, there has... The name Outsiders has been used in the New 52 universe, but we have not gotten a team... Uh, like the outsiders were that existed prior to that. Right, right, yeah. yeah. And during the was it the Winnick run or the Dixon run? Was that where they had almost like a tryout period where there was like five issues where it was like okay maybe Aquaman will be on the team. Uh, nope, maybe Martian Manhunter will be on the team. Nope. That was that was in the intermezzo period between um, it, it that that series was called Outsiders Five of a Kind. Okay. And that was after the book, uh, the Winnick run ended after one year later. And they had all these grand designs for the team that unfortunately kind of it, it kind of changed around midstream because if I'm remembering right, I mean, I, I, let me look this up so I can make sure I get this right. Because I, sure. I what it is was, OK, that's right. it was Tony Bedard was going to write the book and it was solicited as such. But then before issue number one came out, there was a change. And uh, and um, then it was written by uh, Chuck Dixon, oh. and then and then Chuck Dixon left uh, bef- within a year. I want to say by issue ten or so, Chuck Dixon had left, and then uh, the book kind of it, it had a few fill-in guys. I know there was um, um, uh, Frank Thierry wrote wrote an issue in there, and then Peter Tomasi came on and then continued the book through the end of its run. Uh, excuse me, continued the book for a while around, um, you know, Blackest Night and all that. And then the book went over and it was being handled by uh, Dan DiDio and Keith Giffen. Yeah. And that was the crew that was on there right up to issue 40 when it ended. And they brought in, like, the Creeper and Owl Man and, like... Uh... Actually, actually, that was Tomasi that brought them in. Okay, that was Tomasi, okay. It was Tomasi that brought them in. The, the concept that Tomasi worked was that each member of the team represented some aspect of Batman. Hmm. And and to to circle this back around to where we were, Halo represented Robin. I can see that yeah. in that she was the the lightness and the you know uh, the 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 antithesis to all the darkness and brooding, you know. So so that and it, and it actually worked really good. That Tomasi series never got a lot of play, 
Um, you know, I, I think having a team where, you know, it, it really was the classic outsiders. It was Geoforce and Katana and Black Lightning and Halo was just not going to sell in, in the late 2000s, early 2010s. And then once, once uh, you know, Dan DiDio and Keith Giffen and um, the art early in that was done by Philip Tan. And I'm actually a really big fan of all three of those guys. Yep. Everything that DiDio and Giffen have done together, I've really enjoyed but it's you know on the internet everyone has to hate uh, Dan DiDio. It's like it's like nerd law. I've you know I I I don't hate his writing. Like I I think back to Wednesday Comics when he did the Metal Men story. Yep. I thought that was really fun. Did, um, did you read uh, the New Fifty Two OMAC? I did. I for, it didn't it didn't grab me. I read like the first two issues and then I gave up just because I had to prioritize what other stories yeah. I was getting. I didn't hate that. I loved that. Giffen was channeling Jack Kirby. I thought he did right. a really good job of channeling Jack Kirby. They, um, they, do, the, they do similar stuff on Outsiders. There, there's two issues in their run, one of which is an issue-long fight between Geoforce and Black Lightning, <laughs> and another one which is an issue-long fight between Geoforce and the Olympian, okay. which are just, I mean, they are freaking fantastic. <laughs> if, I, if I knew whether or not Dan DiDio was going to be at Heroes Con next month in Charlotte, I would bring those for him to sign. <laughs> <laughs> Along with OMAC number one, <laughs> probably surprised him as much as anybody. So, <laughs> I, I met him at a Boston con a couple years ago, mm-hmm. and my friend Paul actually asked him when Skeets would get his own ongoing series. <laughs> so I think I think his 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 goal was to legitimately find out if Skeets would get a series, but also to actually like stumble Dan DiDio and just get him to like crack. And I think that did it because Dan was kind of like. Are you serious? It's like, are you one of those fans, or is that a joke? But <laughs> we we had we had a similar thing. This was um, oh good gracious, uh, good gracious! This must have been like 2008 or so, a while back at Heroes Con, the DC Nation panel. Mm-hmm. There was one gal um, that was asking about every single defunct uh, like female legacy hero. Like every, she would constantly, like, repeatedly ask questions, and she finally said, "I have an Arrowette question." Oh, God. And Dan DiDio just deadpans, ask your Arrowette question. She goes, do you have any plans for Arrowette? No plans for Arrowette. Next question. (laughs) (laughs) The look on his face just was worth the the cost of admission to the con. Just Arrowette. Ah, no love, no love. No, no love at all. Uh, okay, let's let's uh, let's backtrack a couple decades and actually look at who were, and we'll do this pretty quickly. But who were the original members of the Outsiders? The, um, the we ori- started we started off with two pre-existing characters. Yes, uh, and Black that, Lightning and Metamorpho had already appeared in comics. Yes, Metamorpho much more so than Black Lightning at this point. Right, right. I think Black Lightning have, well, primarily appeared in his. Well, he had his own title. Yeah, and then he appeared in Justice League of America a few times, uh, notably when he uh, refused admission right. to the Justice League. But he was kind of a non-entity by this point in the '80s. Um, and Metamorpho, of course, he had been around for a long time, had his own his own strip for many years. Yep. Uh, but I'm and and I know he was an associated with the Justice League, but I don't think at this point he had been a member. I think the I think his Justice League membership came after this if if i'm remembering correctly i'm i'm not i'm not a big justice league expert i yeah he was never a member they i'm sure he had some interactions with them but yeah he he was not a member i don't think that happened until the 90s right yeah like after zero hour like he was because well, he, yeah he was on the team 
right before Grant Morrison launched the right. JLA I, book. I remember that. And I want to wasn't he on like some iteration of the Justice League inter, uh, yeah, he was international on international or Europe, yeah. one of those. Right. But yeah, so uh the the and and what's interesting is through the course of Batman the Outsiders number 1 we're introduced to all the members because Batman is drawn to the small central european country of Markovia because Lucius Fox has been taken hostage by radicals there. Mm-hmm. And so that brings the Batman into action. And um you know, so Batman goes and he asks the Justice League, "Hey, will you help me go recover my friend?" And the Justice League tells him to go pound salt. Right. Saying that they won't get involved in Markovia because it's this international hotspot. Right. The State Department asked them not to. There's some kind of weird politics involved, which yeah. felt a little bit contrived, but whatever. You roll with it. <laughs> yeah. And so Batman says, screw you guys. I do what I want. Mm-hmm. So he goes on his own. And through uh, two of my favorite words in the English language, plot contrivance, <laughs> he runs into all the members of the Outsiders there, and they all form a team. And so we meet up in short order with... Metamorpho and Black Lightning. Uh, Black Lightning is there. I forget why Metamorpho is there. I know Black Lightning is there because he was working with um, some Markovian scientists because his powers had been unreliable for a while. And uh, then we meet um, uh, Katana. And uh, this is her first appearance in Batman Outsiders number one. We run, we run into Prince Brian Markov, the crown prince of Markovia, who is there fighting against the usurper Baron, Baron Bedlam. Great name. Yeah, absolutely great name. Between him and Baron Brit, uh, Blitzkrieg yeah. <laughs> over an all-star squadron. And then uh, Baron Death over from Steel the Indestructible Man. And Baron Blood, the vampire from yep. Captain America. Yeah, throw the Baroness from G.I. Joe in there and we, we're good to go. Perfect. Uh, I, I think any book can be improved by the Baroness. but uh. Absolutely. I wouldn't read that comic. <laughs> uh, but basically all of them end up coming together and uh, through, um, through you know, various misadventures in Markovia, the team is brought together and Batman declares them to be his new team, that he doesn't need the Justice League anymore, that he will create his own team that will take care of all the problems that fall outside of the purview of the Justice League and thus is born the Outsiders. And among those characters that he finds is Halo, who appears mm-hmm. as just an amnesiac girl lying in the rubble of some building. Yep. And he wakes her up, and she blasts him with some sort of light-based energy. And that. And so I'm trying to think. So that story. That okay. So that story comes out in early 1983. Mm-hmm. And now, fast forward. This issue of Secret Origins comes out right in the middle of 1986. So her character has only existed for three years. So she right. has not had a lot of appearances. Uh, no, and, and pretty much all of her appearances have been either in Batman the Outsiders or Teen Titans. Right. Because there was an early crossover between the two. And, uh, and, 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 um, and I've got some notes on this, but this was – Mike W. Barr and Jim Aparo, they were – the team on Outsiders. The only other artist that really worked on the Outsiders much in this era was Alan Davis, who mm-hmm. took over for the, um, uh, the the newsstand book when the direct market book started up. But Mike W. Barr, to me, really 
is the outsider's guy. He created most of these characters. He knows their interactions and their personalities and how they work. And the, the one of the major subplots of this book, and people forget about the outsiders, but at the time it was similar in a lot of ways to books like, you know, the new teen Titans and the uncanny X-Men in that it was the team book, but there was a lot of subplots and stuff going on in them. And the personal lives of the characters mattered a lot in that book. And one of the major subplots for the first, pretty much the entire run of uh, Batman the Outsiders was Halo's origin mm-hmm. and who, who she really was. I mean, her, her, Batman gave her the name Gabrielle Doe because they didn't know who she was. Yep. And so there was a series of issues. It, it's, it's actually a um, – th- this is kind of the, the epilogue to this four-part story called The Truth About Halo which is not in sequential issues. They would uncover something, and then they would go and be facing another threat. And then a few issues later, they would follow up on the clue that Batman had found, and they'd find something else out. And then they'd get sidetracked with another threat. And so there was this long-running plot. And besides her origin, it was also her, uh, you know, her trying to adjust to, quote-unquote, real life. The relationship between her and uh, Katana, her and Tatsu, was a very important part of the story and a very important part of these two characters because Tatsu essentially became her surrogate mother. Mm-hmm. Was Tatsu, of course, had lost her family uh, back in Japan, and and you know, and Halo needed some kind of strong parental figure in her life, and it certainly wasn't going to be the Batman. Not in this in this era. Uh, <laughs> the way I describe Batman is a taskmaster in this book. He doesn't he doesn't want to know their personal lives. He has no doesn't care. He's like, when I call you, people answer. That's pretty much. His role, right. <laughs> and and that's eventually what why, why he ends up leaving is because he's like, well, the Justice League needs me. Bye. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, so yeah, the it, it, that she got a secret origin, I think, was was telling of the fact that this was a character that they were content to dole out little bits of her origin and slowly let us all learn about it, rather than um, you know just kind of either doing the the Chris Claremont style where. It's just mysterious, and we go on for years and years and years, and we don't find anything else out. Or the you know the uh, you know the Silver Age style. Hi, I'm Halo. Here's my origin. You know, right. So I'm trying to imagine if you could do that sort of long form storytelling in this era, even though this era is often accused as being sort of very decompressionist, and when you've got stories sort of written over five or six issues for for trade and hardcover collecting. I wonder if you could dangle a plot thread like that for so long today. I think you would need to be a writer who has enough clout to pull that off. And uh, the first thing I thought of is is Jeff Johns, who yeah. would. I'm thinking back when he was writing Flash or Green Lantern, but bef- you know before he became the man at DC, even Justice Society when he was writing right. JSA, right, right, right. Seeds would get planted for stories that wouldn't pay off for a year or two down the road, down the line. Yeah. Or and or little character things. I always think of the, um, you know, the the um, the friendship between Adam Smasher and Black Adam mm-hmm. in the early days of JSA pays huge dividends down the road right, in not, that title. In, yeah, in fifty two especially. So that was yeah, years not, later. Yeah, not not only in in that title, but in not, like I said elsewhere in the DCU, and it was all built off of just little things. You know, mm-hmm. so I I think you could do it, but I don't I don't know that a lot of people. It's it's hard because we say we want more in depth and nuance, but they 
you know, when, when you go to a con, they, well, what's going to happen with this? What's going to happen with this? They, they want to be spoiled on it at the same time. <laughs> you know, so it's like, just read it. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know that we as readers are necessarily patient enough to deal with those kind of subplots. I mean, I remember in the 90s when, you know, making fun of, of, of uh, dangling subplots in the X-Men was like an Olympic sport. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like that was every month in Wizard making fun of Dan. It's like, but it's like, but that's how the book is written. I mean, that's the way Claremont does it. <laughs> so, but you know, I, I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a good question. You know, it 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 really does raise the question: Would we, would a writer be able to do it and the audience accept it? And would we, as the reader, be patient enough to wait for that payoff and not just kind of, you know, throw our hands in the air? Or more likely. All of us get together on on one message board or one Facebook post and speculate every possible permutation until somebody gets it right. Yeah, that that was what I was going to get to. Is <laughs> the, the secret would not stay secret for two or three years. This yeah. would be this would be spoiled by some fan. Yeah, and then Mike W. Barr would have changed her story just to. <laughs> <laughs> Did it pull a millennium? Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so. All right. Well, uh, let's get into this story then. All right. The second story in Secret Origins, number six, is entitled Fallen Angel. Our writer is Mike W. Barr. Artist is Dick Giordano. Our letterer, Duncan Andrews. Colorist is Adrian Roy. Coordinating editor is Robert Greenberg. And all this information came from Mike's Amazing World of Comics, which you can find at dcindexes.com. Halo, a.k.a. Gabby Doe, visits the graves of the Harpers in Arlington, Missouri and then returns to their home, now lifeless. As she explores the home, she hears a creaking sound behind her and springs into action, zapping the intruder with her orange aura, only to discover it is her teammate Looker, dispatched by her other teammate and surrogate guardian, Katana, to retrieve her. Looker asks Halo what she's doing in this place, and Gabby tells her that it belonged to the Harpers, who were her family, kinda. Halo begins the story of young Violet Harper, who at first seemed like a normal newborn baby. But it soon becomes obvious that something is not wired right in her head as she begins to act out in terrible ways, with her parents at their wit's end on how to discipline her. But with her photographic memory and skill at manipulation, Violet always got off without consequence no matter what she did. Violet continues down her dark path, moving from animal cruelty to shoplifting to armed robbery. That was when she hooked up with Mark Deniger, and the two were ready to strike out on their own. One night, the pair happened to cross a wrecked car, the driver trapped inside with, amid the flames. The man handed out his briefcase, and Violet, upon seeing the contents, pulled Mark away and let the man die. What was so important about the briefcase? A chemical formula for synthetic heroin, which Violet quickly memorized, then destroyed the papers for. The pair tried to shake down the formula's owner, mob boss and 100-hit top man Tobias Whale, for money, but the pasty mob boss tries to eliminate them, leading Violet and Mark to escape to Europe to sell the formula to the highest bidder. In Paris, Whale's agent Cyanide tracks him down, only to find Mark, dead of an apparent quote-unquote accidental overdose, but actually a hotshot administered by Violet. Violet continues her trek through Europe, ending up in the small nation of Markovia, when Cyanide finally catches up to her. The encounter ends with Cyanide shooting Violet with her poison bullets, leaving the girl dead in a heap. And for Violet, that was truly the end. But above her body, a strange shimmering rip in reality appeared, and lights shot down into Violet. And immediately after that, 
the newly revived body of Violet Harper was found by the Batman, himself in Markovia, to rescue his friend Lucius Fox. Batman sees the young woman surrounded by a halo. Eh? Eh? I get it, like her name. Yes! It all makes sense now. (laughs) But confused, she lashes out and knocks the hero for a loop. Attacking wildly, Halo soon passes out from the strain, and Batman uh, catches her and introduces her to the rest of the hastily assembled team, the Outsiders. Back in the present, Looker asks Gabby if that was when she gained her powers, to which Gabby explains that her kind, the Oracles, have always had the, quote, powers. She tells her teammate of the first Oracles, who existed before the Big Bang, and how they observed all of creation in their great quest for knowledge. And how as they gained more and more knowledge, the oracles began to divide and reproduce. The oracle that would become Halo was different. Its fascination was fixed entirely on humanity. All would have been well and good save for a celestial alignment of the planets in the Sol solar system, which led to the oracle inhabiting Violet's body and the birth of Halo. Looker asks if this means that Halo is not human. Gabby's response is that she wasn't, but she is now. Halo accounts how Batman tracked down her quote-unquote parents and how she met with them despite not having any of Violet's memories. Cyanide also returns to force the information of the formula out of her, only to end up shot by Violet's father in an act of love. But Cyanide was not so easily defeated in her own dying moments, shot and killed the Harpers in cold blood. As they lay dying, Gabby told the Harpers that she remembered being their daughter and that she loved them, but only one of those statements was true. Later, Dr. Jace was able to help Gabby remember that she was an oracle, leading to the other oracles to try to rip her out of her human form. And if not for the efforts of the outsiders, Halo would have been no more. And now, here she is, still unsure of what lies ahead, or why she was drawn here. Looker gives Gabby an envelope which Katana had asked her to deliver, and inside is Violet Harper's birth certificate. Today is Violet Harper's, no, today is Halo's birthday. The first she has ever had. And as a present, Katana has sent another package. A new costume. And as the sun rises in Arlington, Missouri, Halo and Looker fly home, eager for whatever comes next. It's a pretty twisted little tale, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Um, my, the first note that I had was, if you want me to think that a character is crazy or evil... Showing them as a child burning a cat with gasoline is a pretty yes. effective way of convincing me that this character is a sociopath. And look at the look in her face in that panel, too. Oh, yeah. She is... Yeah, this is... It's, it's Damien. It's a it's yeah. she-Damien. <laughs> and and it's, it's such a contrast because Looker... Excuse me, not Looker. Looker is elsewhere in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, Halo was such a sweet, naive, trusting character. Mm-hmm. As Mike W. Barr wrote her, that when all this started coming out, when the Harpers were first introduced into the book and they told us about, you know, how Violet was this, you know, awful wild child, it, you, you almost don't believe it. It, it. You just assume that, okay, these guys must be agents of some evil force, mm-hmm. that this can't be true because that's not Halo, you know. Nowadays, this sort of thing is almost cliche, you know, but reading it um, in the context of when it was in the mid-80s, it, it's, like I said, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to accept. Bit of a clarification for the listeners, the oracles, the race of oracles, is nothing to do with the Greek sort of mystic women who were known to 
give prophecies and predict the futures. It is actually oracles as in A-U-R-A, like an aura or some yeah. sort of light or a, a halo, as you said. Yeah, they're, they're, they're just um, basically light-based cosmic beings. And I don't think the oracles really played much of a role in the DCU outside of dealing with Halo. I don't remember any time where they showed up with another character besides her. Because they, they, they do show up in other books where she's involved with. Um, Blackest Night being a, a good example where her light-based powers being an oracle are super effective against the Black Lanterns. Because she can you know use all for different light. It's kind of like how Dr. Light was really powerful against the Black Lanterns. Yeah, yeah. Same I was, idea. I was just thinking, you know, given how much world building and continuity he likes kind of reconfiguring, I'm surprised Jeff Johns never made her a crucial part of his, you know, the Lantern Corps or the War of Light. Like, yeah, well, and you know, you'd, you'd think that they would have been because doesn't, I mean, that dealt a little bit with, um, or he dealt a little bit in his Green Lantern book with Krona and the Big Bang and all that, and the Oracles existed before the Big Bang. right. You know, maybe maybe if maybe if Mike W. Barr had been working more for DC at the time, we would have <laughs> yeah, <he, laughs> gotten it. You would have given him a nudge, like, "Hey, yeah. remember I did this." Hey, the um the the thing that uh, strikes me as odd about these early pages where we see um, Halo looking through the Harper's house, and then Looker comes and they start talking, is I, I said this earlier in the show. Jim Aparo's look for these characters was so definitive that it it really kind of takes me out seeing Dick Giordano drawing Halo. Mm-hmm. I like Dick Giordano's work quite a lot. It's just odd seeing somebody other than Jim Aparo drawing her. You know? Yeah. Looker, uh, Looker is, you know, sure, her look's a little less... Uh, Halo's got a very, you know, kind of uh, oddball costume with the black, with the colors, kind of in an op-art sort of look. Looker has a more traditional heroine costume. So... And, and she's got the longer hair, and, and uh, Gabby's got the, the short hair. So it, ju- it just looked odd to me. I mean, I, I like the art in it. It's very well done. The storytelling's excellent. It just takes me a minute to go, why does this not look right? And it's like, oh, because it's it's not Aparo, you know? <laughs> it's not the signature artist doing it, so it looks mm-hmm. a little bit off, off model yeah. almost. Yeah. Yeah. I do not like either of their costumes. <laughs> I, no. I, I, was trying to, I was trying to find a way to, to be kinder about it halos is decent i mean halos is just, it like you said it's different it's an oddball costume it doesn't look like yeah. anybody else's costume and that that's one of the reasons i, I like it so much is because it doesn't look like a costume she almost looks like uh more like a character that might have been in a cosmic book yeah like captain marvel or warlock to, to be a marvel example or omega men yeah. something like that for dc it doesn't look so much like a superhero costume looker's costume is supposed to look ridiculous <laughs> yeah so so that to me that works wonderfully it's supposed to be a ridiculous you know impractical costume that no one would would wear on purpose yeah. you know but that looker's a whole other can of worms <laughs> yeah. actually you know what but that's right i think I think maybe part of it is the context. If I saw Halo in a different setting, if I just saw her as as part of a cosmic group, or even if that was just a, a, a costume designed for a Carol Danvers, like a Captain Marvel type of mm-hmm. character, I, I would probably be a lot more favorable towards it. Well, especially um, when you look in uh, with the rest of the Outsiders crew, they have very traditional superhero costumes. Even Katana, when you come right down to it, her original costume 
it's not a tradi- it's not a typical heroine's costume in that it covers pretty much her entire body. Mm-hmm. But it's it's not an atypical Asian swords you know sword fighter hero costume. It's it's not demonstrably different from in the old judo master costume from Charlton Comics, or you know or you know that that, that kind of you know uh, superheroized version of a samurai's armor, which is essentially mm-hmm. what her costume is. I mean, Black Lightning wears his. I mean, yeah, he's got a '70s style costume with the big neckline on it but it's a pretty straightforward superhero costume metamorpho batman of course are classic and geoforce is a very you know just simple you know spandex leotard and headgear deal you know um so she she does stand out and it's one of the interesting things about it is that because she does get a lot of focus on her um her down her you know her civilian identity gets a lot of focus that she stands out in a crowd of this bright color team to begin with Mm -hmm. you know so when did Looker join the join the team? Looker joined, I want to say, in the Baxter series book because okay. it, she wasn't ever in the um, she wasn't ever in the, with the group when Batman was with the team. She joined after that, and I believe she joined. I want to say like uh, after the first after the first or second storyline in the Baxter paper book because she wasn't there at the at the very beginning. I don't think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she she was a later addition to the team, and Looker's deal was that she was, and they actually allude to this very briefly at the end of this issue, that she was a mousy plain Jane girl who got um, when she got her superpowers turned into this knockout supermodel, right? And she chose to stay that way all the time. Yeah, and she's a very and you could see from you know the dialogue that Bart gives her, she's very shallow. She cares about appearances and looks and how handsome Batman is. And you know, <laughs> uh, there's uh, she, she's an acquired taste. She later becomes like queen of the vampires, and okay. that becomes she. So she becomes a, a you know a uh, a smoking hot supermodel vampire chick. It's all very strange, <laughs> but it's but you know it's consistent. So I got to yeah. give it that. You know, <laughs> yeah, because I was wondering about her her role in this story because I knew that Halo had this connection with Tatsu. So I was like, why isn't Katana the other woman in the story? And then I realized, well, Looker must have been relatively new because Barr is using her as the as basically the audience as the reader right. she is yeah. the blank slate who can come in here and just ask the questions yeah um, so so halo is telling the story to us through right. looker yes and all the events that take place here um from basically after once the oracle bonds with the body of violet harper mm-hmm. all the events that take place katana was there for yeah all the you know this the stuff with the Harpers and Cyanide and the Oracles trying to take her back and all that. Those were those were issues of Batman the Outsider. So Katana was there. So you're right. Barr is using Looker because Looker wasn't around for any of this to be the surrogate um, audience. Yeah. They say, okay, well, if you, if, if you weren't there, here's what happened. And, uh, and it, it's it's a it's it's a pretty succinct recap of you know four issues worth of comics plus all the background stuff because we we knew about. Violet's history, but not the details and stuff like this. Um, you know, the, the, her her really screwed up childhood. I mean, that was uh, that was just shocking. Reading that, I agree with you. If you want somebody to be a psychopath, having them try to set an animal on fire pretty much <laughs> seals the deal for me. Yeah. You know, but in but it's um, to me, I, I I like that kind of really harsh negative background for her because that to me takes the idea that you know. Um, it, it's she's not Violet Harper. She's really not. But in a sense, this is Violet getting another chance. Yeah. 
you know she doesn't in in some of the modern books they would have her be referred to as violet but she always went by gabby whenever mike w Barr was writing it mm-hmm. and that she was she made it that i'm not violet but you know and it you know that there's a line in the in the ant-man trailer it says second chances don't come around all too often i suggest you take it yeah I, I, you know, it, it seems I like themes like that. I like themes about redemption and second chances. And even though, again, it's not really Violet, it sort of is still a second chance for her to do right. Right. And yeah. And I think that's, I think that comes to a head in the moment when she's standing over Violet's parents. Yeah. And essentially lies to them to give them a sense of closure when, as they're dying, to give them a sense of hope that their daughter did find a redemption that their daughter did turn her life around and become a good person, even if that might not be technically to the strictest sense accurate. Right. Um, I, I think that shows that she's making an attempt to correct retroactively this, this character's, her body's history. Yeah. And especially considering that the Harper's as awful a person as Violet was, they never gave up on. Her. Yeah. And and they they make a point about that that you know they their her parents stand up to cyanide who's a international paid assassin and 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 pay the price for it but you know that that's how much they love their daughter even if you know really it's not but as far as they were concerned it still was so was the the presence of cyanide and even Tobias Whale were they in the Outsiders comics or were they just used in this story cyanide was used in the story um, in the actual comics. Mm-hmm. Um, she actually rates a cover, I think. I want to say issue 20 has her on the cover. Tobias Whale appears – I don't think he appears in any modern portion um, other than – like he appears in – I think he appears in flashback if I'm remembering right. Okay. And what the interesting thing about the use of Tobias Whale in this is that if you remember your first series of Black Lightning, right, Tobias was, Whale – he was Black Lightning's first villain. He was Black Lightning's villain. first villain because he he was the he's the boss of the one hundred, right? Which was the crew that Black Lightning fought. So again, that that was a nice bit of tying it all together because that that's one of the things that's thrown at the outsiders sometimes is that this crew of people really have no business being together. Mm-hmm. But Barr did a good job of making them work well together. You know, it's like, well, what does a Japanese uh, sword fighter, a prince, a European prince, a school teacher from Metropolis? Uh, the elemental man and an amnesiac girl have in common. It's like, well, nothing on the surface. <laughs> but you know what? A, um, a, a goddess from Africa, a short Canadian, a German circus performer, and a Russian sharecropper have nothing in common either. You know? Yeah, yeah no, exactly. And, and you mentioned the X-Men before. And reading this and kind of thinking about the, the, the precious few Outsiders comics – I almost get I, – I, I don't know if I would compare them to the X-Men so much as the New Mutants. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but still, I mean, I mean both were written by Claremont. So he yeah. – both of them had that very kind of um, soap operatic style where yeah. every once in a while he would just devote an entire story to one character and this is what it feels like. And so, yeah. yeah it, they, it, it, especially, the, especially the early ones where you have Batman as the Taskmaster like I said. Yeah. Yeah. That who, who's running the show kind of thing. I, I can definitely see that that New Mutants right, right, sort of right. connection, yeah, which you're makes ju- sense. You're just if extensions you, of my will, <laughs> right? Especially if you if you extend your analogy, and if the Outsiders is akin to the New Mutants, that makes the Teen Titans, New Teen Titans, equivalent to X Men. And I think most people will buy into that hypothesis. Yeah, yeah. you know, 
so yeah, so I could I and and in a sense it, it it even makes more sense when you think about the fact that the outsiders, while very successful and long running, is not usually considered in the same league as the new Teen Titans, and the New Mutants is sort of the same way compared to the Uncanny X Men, right? Which is again, but um, there's there's nothing. That's the thing. I I'm never really warmed up, and uh, you know um, Tom Panarese is going to be very upset with me. I never warmed up to the New Teen Titans. I've tried reading it. To me, it, it's it's kind of I don't know. It, it it just doesn't engage me. Whereas reading the Outsiders, when I because I I got into the Outsiders really late because I started reading the Outsiders during the Judd Winnick era. I didn't. I wasn't a DC guy growing up, so I didn't even know that there was this team that Batman led in the eighties. Like I had heard about the 90s book, but I had never read it. So I got into the book during the Winnick run and then went back when the showcase came out. And that's how I was introduced to the team, to the original team. Yeah. And reading that showcase, I always say the sign of a, good, of a good comic series or a good run of comics is when you finish one issue and you immediately grab the next one. Yeah. And you're thinking, I got time to read one more before I got to go to bed, you know? <laughs> okay. I tore through that showcase in a matter of days. Wow. And that's nice. like, that's, I think it's... I think it's it's like 22 issues or 23 issues and the annual. So it's it's a big chunk of 80s comics there, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. And I tore through it because that's the way it was. I finished one. I was like, oh, I got to see the next one. And Barr writes a lot of two-part stories. Mm-hmm. So it'll end on, so, oh, man, it's a cliffhanger. Oh, okay, I got to see how this ends. <laughs> and so, you know, that, that, was the, that, that was the book that spoke to me. And that's, you know, when you said, hey, are you interested in doing this for Halo? I said, totally, because... All of these characters are, you know, they're characters I was introduced to relatively late in my comic book uh, reading origin, I guess, for lack of a better term. But they've they've come to be some of my absolute favorites because of the way that Bar and Aparo handled them, and you know, uh, and 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 not just the the action bits and fighting against uh, Maxi Zeus and his Olympians or the Masters of Disaster. Or uh, you know the other or the Force of July. I love the Force of July. <laughs> It's 1984. Do you know where your freedoms are? You know, uh, but it, it's it's the characters and making the characters shine that made me yeah. really a fan of this book and this series. And I think Bard does a really good job of making us care about Halo in this you know 22 page story. That's you know about half of it is recap of stuff from Batman and the Outsiders. But to if you're picking this up for the Batman feature and you've never read Batman and the Outsiders, you might read this and say, hey, I'm intrigued by this. I want to see more of this girl and, and the people that she hangs out with. Yeah. yeah. So, well, I will let you off the hook by throwing more hatred towards myself in that not just Tom Panneries, but a lot of people will hate me if I say I'm also not a big fan of the new Teen Titans. Um, like you, I mean, I, I wasn't... I wasn't a big DC guy. I was more of a Marvel zombie when I was growing up. I tried to get into DC in the 90s, and nothing was grabbing me. Uh, so I, I started getting into DC more about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And by then, like when I, when I went back and I tried getting into the new Teen Titans because everybody else loved them, they, they, they weren't doing that for me. And I, I love Marv Wolfman's work right. at mm-hmm. Marvel um, particularly the Marvel horror corner yes. of his work, and when he was uh, the editor in chief, I love that stuff. His his product at DC, I'm not a big fan of New Teen Titans, and I'm not a big fan of Crisis on Infinite Earths. Mm. Um, 
You gotta be careful where you say that last one. Oh, especially. oh, I, oh I know. I've, <laughs> I've drawn a big old target on my head. But see, I, 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 I too, I generally like Marv Wolfman's work. Um, generally, I like uh, pretty much all of it. I, you mentioned Marvel horror. I love the fact that Marv Wolfman for a period wrote Werewolf by Night. Yes. <laughs> there, there's some somewhere, some cosmic entity is like yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I, I always thought the thing with with the new Teen Titans was like you saying I was a Marvel guy growing up. And so, you know, um, I, I liked the X-Men. My, my favorite X-Team growing up was Excalibur. Was because okay. I, I just, I'm a big Alan Davis fan. Another Outsiders connection right there with Alan Davis. Um, but, you know, the, the Marvel stuff was always more foremost in my head from uh, between, you know, the books that my brother would read and I would read, watching Spider-Man, His Amazing Friends, and The Incredible Hulk. And then later, you know, X, the X-Men animated series. Because Batman animated was about Batman. It wasn't really about DC. Yeah. In the wider sense, until we got into Superman, and by that point, I was in high school, and I was start. I was already reading Superman and everything else. So when I go back to try and read the new Teen Titans, I mean, it, it's good. It's just to me, it's like, you know, it, it just doesn't engage me the way that reading Claremont's Uncanny X Men does. Yeah, I'm you there, know, I'm there with you. But and that's but to me, and you know, and 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 I get in trouble over on Two True Freaks sometimes for speaking my unpopular opinions. <laughs> but to me, it's like you know. They're, that's why they publish more than one comic. Yeah. You know, because different things are enjoyable to different people. We were talking earlier about, um, uh, you know, the DC Nation panels at, at various comic cons. And we were, and this, again, this, this was that same one with the Arrowette question. Uh, they opened the panel and said, what's everybody reading? What are people enjoying? And this was, this was during, was this, this was, I think this must've been during final crisis. And, I yelled out "Outsiders" as loud as I could because that's what I was enjoying. It's my favorite book at DC, and and uh, ev- and everyone just kind of stopped and looked at me. I'm like, "What? The book is awesome!" And Dandy and Dandy Dia said, "Well, what do you like about it?" I said, "I said I know I'm going to get a good actiony read every month, and there's good characterization every month, and something happens." You know, it's like that's what I'm looking for, and that delivers every month. And it's like, I don't need, you know, um, I, I don't want to pick on the ultimate universe, but I don't need 22 pages of two people lying on a bed talking. <laughs> I'm, I don't, not from, a, not from a superhero comic. Now, if you want, you know, if you want to give me a, a you know, a shoujo manga or something, okay, that might make more sense. <laughs> but, you know, I, I want, I want that, that's, those kind of books remind me of the books that I liked when I was younger, and that's what Outsiders is. Batman and the Outsiders, or just right straight up Outsiders. It's a book that was... It was it was action and and uh, suspense and character and just plain old fun. I'm glad I read that issue of Ultimate Spider-Man in a trade <laughs> and, and not individually. If I had been reading it month to month, I probably would have gotten to that issue and said, "Okay, <laughs> I feel like we could have reshuffle reapportioned some of our our comic book real estate for this issue." And and that's not to say that that books with only people talking can't be good. Um, what what issue is it of X Factor? X Factor eighty seven, I think. That's the one where they're on the couch when they're talking to Doc Samson. Yes, or, it's yeah, called yeah, yeah examinations. examinations. Se- second issue of X Factor I ever bought. Me too. The, or, the pre- well, no, it would have been like the third because I was getting it almost almost right when Peter David took over. But yeah, well, I was reading it. Well, I I had I decided to start getting it, and the first issue I got was the. The uh, the last X Factor installment in um, Executioner's song, yep, yep, which doesn't feature any member of X Factor. I don't think. I think Madrox pops up for like one page or something in it. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. Um, but but again, that that was a book that was all talking, right? But it was David showing us 
the insights into the characters. And that's what Barr was really good at too in the downtime stories, whether it was just a cut, you know, two pages of subplot before we go off to fight, um, you know, uh, I don't know, like I said, whatever, whoever we're fighting this month. The Force of July. The Force of July, or I'm trying to, or, um, you know, the nuclear family, yeah. the, the, the King of Texas, <laughs> or King, King Oil, whatever his name was. Um, you know, but before you go off and do that, just have a couple of pages of subplot. Or whether you do it in something like uh, like the Secret Origins, where you get the characters a chance just to talk, you know, and to uh, and to talk about them, you know, that their own history. Or you do it like Peter David did in that, where you give an excuse for the characters to unload their soul without it being just info dump, you know. So there, there, there's a there's a place for that, and I think that something that you know that the really good writers of the '80s and '90s were good at doing was weaving that all together, yeah. so that you didn't feel like Oh man, this this is a talky issue, you know, or it's like okay, this is a fighty issue and it's over in three minutes, yeah. you know. So and, and that that to me was just always the strength of Outsiders as a book was that Mike W. Barr was a good enough writer and had enough um, chops to cover all the bases on a regular basis, same as you know Marv Wolfman and uh, um, um, Chris Claremont and you know the the other guy John Byrne. Over on FF, especially, you know, all those guys from that, or even on Alpha Flight, John, um, you know, Byrne, Byrne did some Alpha Flight, didn't he? Or was that only Claremont? No, he started Alpha Flight. That was his, yeah. like, they spun out of the X Men. Yeah, so that that's like Claremont, Claremont, wrote it, Claremont wrote it in X Men, and then Byrne wrote the regular book. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, you know, it's, it's so, it, there's a reason why those guys aren't, were the top writers, mm-hmm. you know, that, that they, they could do stuff like that. And I'm very happy, even though, like I said, that, um, Giordano's art, I, I like it. Just was not what I was used to. I was glad that Mike W. Barr handled this because it would not have rung true if this was, you know, anybody else at the time writing Halo, right? Other than Mike W. Barr. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, uh, any other thoughts that you had about this particular story? Uh, the the only thing I do want to add is that if um, if the listeners want to get the full story that Halo is talking about here, the the four parts. Of the truth about Halo, um, are Batman: The Outsiders number sixteen, and then number twenty, and then numbers twenty-two and twenty-three, and then this kind of serves as kind of the epilogue to that. So all of those are collected in Showcase Bat Presents Batman: The Outsiders. If you're interested, uh, that's kind of your one-stop shop yep. for uh, for that, and you can get the whole story on uh, on Halo. Um, also, uh, like I said, I, I I really recommend the Peter Tomasi. Uh, run on Outsiders um, after um, which was it was right around the time of Blackest Night. Halo is in that, and she has some really she she's you you can see where she's gone because she's not the naive girl anymore. She's much more self confident and self assured, and she's a you know uh, and she and she she wrecks stuff up when the black <laughs> when the Black Lanterns are there. Um, and uh, and we have like I said we haven't seen her in the new Fifty Two, so she exists pretty much only in the 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 uh, the pre Flashpoint universe. But yeah, I mean uh, if you if if you like this and you like um, you know like I said there's books with a lot of action. I'd, I'd say check out any of the Outsiders titles. And if Mike W. Barr is writing it, Halo has is either in it or is is, is plays a role in it. Let's put it that way. There you go. So. No, but cool. as far as other notes, no, I, this was a good. This was good. I had never read this one before. I, um, I, I have a few. I've, I've got pretty much every issue of all the different runs of Outsiders, but some of these uh, secondary books, 
I don't have. Like, I know that there was a, uh, a Secret Origins for Black Lightning, I think, right? Yep, and I have written in my notes that you're coming back for that one. Yes, I will. <laughs> I'd like to find a co- copy of it if I can. I'm, like I said, Heroes Con's coming up. Maybe I can find this and uh, the Black Lightning one so I can be prepared. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, are you, by any chance, a Hawkman fan? A little <laughs> bit. Every now and again. All I right. will tell you. I I have the the Secret Origins with Golden Age Hawkman and Power Girl. Yep. And I'll be the first to admit, Hawkman is a confusing character. When you start getting into the retcons that happened that introduced with Crisis on Infinite Earths and Hawkworld and who was he, who was who during this period and when did Fel Andar come in? I can I totally admit that can be confusing. I tried to read the Power Girl portion of that, and I gave up after two pages. I said, I have no idea what's going on. I'm, I'm done. I washed my hands of this whole thing. <laughs> well, that will, be, that will be Ange's chore to, yeah. to summarize when we get to that episode. Ange, more power to you. <laughs> <laughs> He'll have to make sense of it. He's a doctor. He could probably do it. Yeah. <laughs> so. All right. Well, anyway, um, thank you again for being part of this, uh, this episode and the summary for the Halo story. Um, Luke, what other projects? Where can people find you online any any shows or podcasts that you want to uh advertise for our listeners uh first off let me say thank you again for having me on i, I really do appreciate that and uh this this was a treat to read uh and and uh, to to got my my creative juices flow and thinking about the outsiders again as for where else you can find me i'm um I, my primary home is on the two true freaks podcast network which is available at two true uh, my own personal show is called Earth Destruction Directive. It is a Daikaiju podcast. Daikaiju is the Japanese word for giant monsters. And uh, I take a look at all sorts of Japanese giant monster culture from movies, TV shows, comics, games. Um, we're currently um, – I just released an episode as we're recording this uh, covering the 1993 film Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla. We're also currently reading the Marvel Shogun Warriors comics from the uh, late 1970s, early 1980s. Uh, I also am a regular co-host over on the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. That is our horror movie podcast. We're currently working through the Friday the 13th series and the Phantasm series on that. And we did just release a special episode taking a look at Tomb of Dracula number one as part of the Conway crossover, which you uh, may have seen mentioned online, wherever a lot of people were taking up the cause of uh, Jerry Conway's uh, Tumblr post about um, royalties for uh, characters and derivative characters. So we, a lot of different blogs and podcasts got together for that. And uh, my Hawkman blog, uh, Being Carter Hall, which is uh, one, fa- Hawk, one, one man's journey into Hawk fandom, uh, can be found at beingcarterhall.blogspot.com. So if you're uh, interested in, in finding out more about giant monsters, horror movies, or Hawkman, <laughs> please go forth and uh, and uh, partake of my knowledge, I and guess. And if you're not interested in any of those, then you're no friend of this show. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I recognize that, that all three of those are niche in their own way. You know? Um, well, we will definitely talk a lot more about Hawkman in an upcoming episode. Uh, for my part, I just discovered the, the Vault of Startling Terror Monster Horror thing show, and I'm really digging it. I just started looking to, listening to some of the episodes about the, the Dario Argentina. Darren Argento? Dario Argento. Dario yes. Argento, yeah. Um, about the Profundo Rosa, the Deep oh, Red movie. Profundo Rosa, yes. I listened to that podcast. That that sounds really cool. I'm digging that show. You guys do great work. Oh, I, I, I thank you very much because – and actually the, the whole Italian Primer series on that 
I, I was kind of the programmer for that because that, that, that's been a fandom of mine since um, oh, since before I had a DVD player when we were buying those on VHS from Anchor Bay in the in the, in the uh, late nineties. Uh, and so I, I was I was glad that 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 I'm very glad to hear that you're enjoying that series. Yeah. That those Italian films are. Ooh, there's something else, but uh, <laughs> he's he's doing a new Dracula, isn't he? Or did he just do one like a year ago? He, ju- he just did one, I think. Um, or he he did. He's done some of his. A lot of his modern films haven't really uh, lived up to some of his stuff from the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Uh, he did a, a new version of Phantom of the Opera starring Julian Sands. Yeah. Um, he did, he, and, but he, you know, it, it, the thing about Argento is even bad Argento usually is at least interesting to look at. There you go. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I actually. I, <laughs> I, I, I think I found out about his daughter first, Asia Argento. Asia, yeah. Yeah, and I seen I'd seen one or two of her movies, and then I I always heard kind of in the background that her father was this famous director. I was like, never heard of him. And then I saw one of his movies. I was like, this is interesting. I yes. might want to check more about this. But funny funny thing about Asia Argento, I have heard in interviews she says one of her earliest memories as a little girl is uh, going someplace with her dad and sitting and being bounced on the knee of Lucio Fulci. <laughs> Which is hilarious if you you know if you know that you know Fulci was this you know this director that specialized in these gore soaked yeah, yeah. movies and he's like, he's just this kindly old grandfatherly looking gentleman that you wouldn't look twice at if you saw. Him. <laughs> uh, all right, great. Well, on that note, we'll probably call this episode to a close. Um, one more time, thank you very much for being part of it, and I look forward to having you again on future episodes. Oh, thank you very much. I'll, I'll come back anytime you need me. This was a lot of fun. Bear with me a little bit, Secret Admirers. I don't have much of a voice today, but I have to give you what you paid for. Starting with the WordPress site, which can be found at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com. Diabolu Frank left a comment on episode 4, The Firestorm Origin. I definitely like your telling of the story on the podcast, and it makes Martin Stein a richer character for it. On the other hand, the sample pages posted are terrible, and like everyone else, I have to time shift my headcanon back to high school for the bullying to work. So basically, kudos on talking a better game than Conway and Tuska brought. Uh, Frank's time shift comment there refers to the ongoing discussion between some of the listeners about whether Conway's depiction of the football star bullying Martin Stein was realistic in college, or if that's more of a high school behavior. I think the scene could have been corrected because cheating on a test is very different in college than it is in high school. All Stein had to do was tell his professor or any campus administrator they would have caught Brad Baxter in the act of cheating and he'd be expelled. Unless they went to a college that played in the SEC, in which case football trumps everything, even rape allegations. But that way, if Brad is expelled, you have a real reason for him to attack Stein as savagely as he does. Uh, You can hear Diablo Frank on numerous podcasts, including Diana Prince Wonder Woman, DC Bloodlines, devoted to the Atom, among others, Idlehead of Diablo, devoted to Martian Manhunter, the Marvel Superheroes podcast, the Underguides, and probably two or three more by the time I finish this episode. Uh, Moving on to last week's episode about the Crimson Avenger, Jeff Nettleton said, This is one of the DC characters I didn't encounter until I was in college. I'm not really sure what I saw first. While I was in college, I found the second part of that Seven Soldiers of Victory story in JLA 101. That was my first glimpse of the Crimson Avenger, but he is not a central character in that chapter of the story. Who's Who was my first real look at the character, so this is all fresh to me. 
then again, his origin is fresh to the issue. I love Pulp Heroes, which is part of why I tend to love the Golden Age heroes more than the Silver and Bronze Age ones, from a design standpoint. The costumes tended to be more realistic and theatrical, and also more powerful in their simplicity. I pretty much agree with that, Jeff. Jeff went on to talk about the problem with Roy Thomas applying a more modern sense of cultural enlightenment to a story which was set in a much less enlightened time, particularly with regard to different races and cultures. And then Jeff went on and made fun of Siskoid's accent. Kidding. He adds, You mentioned the Spanish Civil War. The Lincoln Brigade and International Brigade were mostly made up of dreamers and were pretty ineffective fighting units, especially since they were poorly equipped and led. The fascists had support of the Nazis, who used the conflict as a testing ground, and the German Condor Legion were devastating in their attacks. It is a nice background for a pulp hero, especially since most were tied to the older World War I. In fact, Howard Chaikin would borrow it for his take on Black Hawk. If you want a nice comic book take on the war, check out Vittorio Giordano's No Pazaran, and Pierre Christen and Enki Bilal's Rank of the Black Condor, reprinted in the late 80s by NBM. And then Chris Franklin of the Supermates podcast, and, you know, this very episode, came in and dropped a crazy truth bomb on the comment section that just exploded my mind. One reason, Chris says, why this and the follow-up miniseries haven't been reprinted is a rather grisly one. Shortly after finishing this series, artist Greg Brooks was convicted of murdering his wife with a hammer. Roy Thomas discusses this a bit in Alter Ego issue 100. I believe Brooks worked on a Wildcat story for Secret Origins that was never published. Some folks at DC had a sick sense of humor concerning this incident. According to Thomas in the issue of Alter Ego, a DC editor hung a hammer on the wall and put a sign on it that read, Greg Brooks Memorial Hammer. Pardon my French, which is different than Siskoid's French, but what the fuck? I just found the first issue of that miniseries in a 50-cent bin a week before this episode came out. I wanted to find out what the hell Siskoid was talking about when he mentioned Hitler parties, as if that was the weirdest thing, and then Chris informs me that the artist killed his wife with a hammer? I don't know if I should be ashamed that I bought the comic, or excited that I paid less than a dollar for it. And what's more, I really want to see that Wildcat story now. I feel gross about that. Holy shit. Chris provided a link in the comments section where Bob Rosakis tells the story in a bit more detail. If you follow the link to read the story, whatever you do, don't read that comments section after the story, because it all too quickly turns into people saying the wife deserved what she got, because, as we all know, people online are fucking terrible. Ah... <sighs> Michael Bradley from the Superman and Batman podcast talked about his two decades experience in newspapers and how newsroom staffs often develop a dark sense of humor as a way to cope with the heinous stuff that they have to cover every day. But even Michael was taken aback by the DC's Memorial Hammer joke. Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary commented on how this story was his first exposure to the hat-wearing version of Crimson Avenger and that he loved the story. He also said... But the biggest thing about this issue was that for the first time I read a book and truly loved Gene Colan's art. I had read Night Force, I had read the Phantom Zone Mini, I had even read a smattering of his Wonder Woman. But as a kid, I thought his art was rough and too sketchy. But as I was a teenager when this came out, my tastes were starting to mature a bit. It was around this time that I began to recognize the genius of some legends whose art didn't work for me before, like Ditko and Kubert, and Colan was one of them. 
I read this book and his moody art, the ethereal feel at times, the use of shadows, it all worked. I went back to the other books and saw how well suited he was for the chaotic night force and the surreal phantom zone. And that's when I saw Colin's art for the brilliance it is. Like I mentioned on the show, Gene Colan wasn't suited for every type of character or story, but I still think he's probably my favorite comics artist. After that, Jeff Nettleton talked about how he came to appreciate Gene Colan too, and then Mark Sweeney commented, Always had a soft spot for the noir-ish Crimson Avenger that I first met in Secret Origins 7, the Sandman issue, and first reading this issue several years ago helped convert me to the Legion of Colan lovers. By the by, it was the final issue of Aztec the Ultimate Man, written by Millar and Morrison, that introduced the JLA initiation ceremony, using the Crimson's accoutrement. Kyle Benning from King Size Comics Giant Size Fun Podcast said, With regards to The Daily Planet, its first appearance, as Ryan stated, was in Action Comics 23, which also marked the first chronological appearance of Lex Luthor. When on sale in February 1940, The change from Daily Star to Daily Planet was made because of the syndicated Superman newspaper comic strip. The Superman Daily debuted on January 16, 1939, and like the appearances thus far in Action Comics, featured Clark Kent's place of employment as the Daily Star. The Daily Star's first actual appearance in the strip would have been in the 13th Daily Strip, which I believe dropped on January 30, 1939, if my past research on the subject is correct. Superman co-creator and artist Joe Schuster grew up in Toronto until he moved with his family to Cleveland as a teenager, where he would meet Jerry Siegel. Growing up in Toronto and needing a great metropolitan newspaper for Clark Kent to work at, he drew on the Toronto Star name and building design as his inspiration. Now, naturally, as the Superman newspaper strip, and the character for that matter, began to grow in popularity and get more circulation, it wasn't a good idea to have your hero working at a newspaper that was clearly inspired by the Toronto Star. Rival newspapers that carried the strip probably didn't see the humor in that. So the name and design were changed, resulting in the creation of the Daily Planet, which would then debut just 13 months after the Superman newspaper strip had been in syndication. The Daily Star would return as the place of employment for the Earth-2 Superman pre-crisis, and as a tabloid rag and rival newspaper for the Daily Planet in the post-crisis continuity, and on the Lois and Clark TV show. Thank you, Kyle, for clearing that up and providing that wealth of information. That's good stuff. I never knew about that. Uh, He also said, I hope someday again we'll get to see new Crimson Avenger stories set in the 1930s or 40s. I'd love to see Francesco Francavia tackle the character. He had a great creator-owned pulp noir character, Black Beetle, that was just awesome. I'd love to see what he could do with the Crimson Avenger in a Vertigo miniseries. I love the Black Beetle comic by Francesco Francavia. If you haven't read that story, go get it. It's, as Kyle said, it's awesome. Tim Wallace from the Court Industries blog said, Listening to this and rereading the issue makes me want to dig into more of these old stories. I love the old pulp heroes, especially when they're done right. The Shadow, the Spider, the Phantom. How can I not have connected guys like Crimson Avenger to them before? And then Diablo Frank came back for episode 5 to say, Like most of the people on the planet commonly known as Earth, I have very little interest in the very typical for his times Crimson Avenger. I do like that he was referred to as Crimson, so that the Avenger is a descriptive name for the strip instead of the character. I also dug his role in the JLA ceremony from Aztec 10. I like Gene Colan, and he seemed a pleasant fellow who perhaps liked his cat too much at a panel I saw him on 15 years ago. 
I definitely grew up with him and enjoy his work on moodier pieces like Tomb of Dracula and Nathaniel Dusk, but I never fell for him the way I did other Silver Age greats like Gil Kane, probably because he was usually inappropriate or undesirable on superhero material. Mike Gustavich was a decent Adam-esque penciler, though a bit mild-mannered for action stories, but he's prettied up other artists' pencils as an embellisher. I have a stack of his Comico Justice Machine issues I bought at a con for about a quarter each that I ought to read sometime, though I like the ones I fished out of the deep discount boxes in the early 90s. Their work on the cover, though? No. All kinds of funky proportions while still being dull. Another issue I passed on. Episode 5 received Twitter favorites and retweets from Greg Arujo, Cord Industries, Siskoid, and Sin. Facebook likes came from Alan Middleton, Chris Ivey, Gottman Shioran, Gene Hendricks, Cord Tolton, Greg Barr, Keith G. Baker, Luke Dobb, Mythmaking Etc., Sean M. Myers, Siskoid, Tim Wallace, and Van Z. Greg Barr left a comment on the Facebook page, Great cast, Ryan, and guests. Only have listened to episodes 1 and 2, but a strong debut. I have about 20 odd issues of the series, but I am looking forward to completing the run. I have the first 10 issues, and I am looking forward to reading along. The older I get, I appreciate Wayne Boring's artwork more and more. Like Kurt Swan, I never fully developed a liking for his art style. Now, as an adult, I find it beautiful to look at. I have many of the same feelings about the story itself. I do like the origin story, but I had hoped it wasn't a literal retelling. In Thomas's deft hands, I think he could have embellished more of the story or corrected some of the mistakes. Roy's love for the source material and the Golden Age in general is apparent. This series helped me seek out All-Star Squadron and read their adventures at a time when The Dark Knight Returns, Punisher, and Watchmen were the harbingers of the grim and gritty era. Burns Superman, All-Star Squadron, Secret Origins, Blue Beetle, The Flash, and Justice League America slash International were always a must-read when I got my hands on money and was able to get to my LCS. Unfortunately, my comic shop always under-ordered Secret Origins, so my collection was spotty, and back issues were always at a premium price around my neck of the woods. Looking forward to more issues and episodes. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Greg. I hope you continue to enjoy the comics and the show. Gord Tolton asked if I planned to review the Golden Age character origins that Roy Thomas wrote in All-Star Squadron, and some other folks have asked about possible origin stories published outside the series. At this time, I have no plans to cover stories that aren't part of this Secret Origins book. Maybe somewhere down the line, but for the moment, I still have more than a hundred origins to review just in this series. The show received a new iTunes review from Dr. G-Man of Nerdology, saying, This podcast is excellent. One of my favorite aspects of my early comic book experience was the reading of the Index-like books such as Who's Who and Ohatmo. Secret Origins, with its retelling of classic origins of the Golden and Silver Age characters, fits the bill. These books were a great gateway into the deep history of the DCU, and comics in general. The podcast format with the revolving guest hosts is very entertaining. Ryan Daly guides each episode well as the constant, as each host adds their own spin to things. If you are a follower of many of the different DC comic book podcasts out there, the guests will be familiar additions to each episode. Thank you for the review, Dr. G-Man. It's always great to receive these. And that is all for this episode. Feedback for the show can be left at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or at BlackCanaryFan or the username Count Drunkin. 
The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics. The reviews expressed on this show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and are believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening.